There's nothing like your podcast selection. The topics and banter make for the complete driving experience. Kind of like Goodyear Auto Service. They offer full service car service. Whatever comes your way, they're ready with a lot of know-how and some friendly tips to help keep you moving. Keep the podcast flowing and your car going with Goodyear Auto Service. For all-around car care, visit GoodyearAutoService.com. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done, too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Richard the Night Stalker Ramirez killed at least 14 people and raped and tortured at least two dozen more, mostly during the spring and summer of 1985. He robbed to support his coke habit and to pay for a place to stay since this piece of shit was allergic to an honest day's work. And he tortured, raped, and killed to sexually satisfy himself and to appease his one true God, the devil. Ramirez was way into Satan, like he would actually pray to the devil for protection before sneaking into some innocent family's home to brutalize, rape, and kill. And today, if you have the stomach for it, you can learn all about the dirty deeds of this dark piece of shit. Extra big parental advisory on this one. We're going dark, real dark, today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hello, Time Suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, and this is Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. Praise Bojangles. Glory be to Michael motherfucking McDonald. And Lucifina, she is in full force this week. Wow. After Monday's heaviness, just kind of topical heaviness, uh, one of my favorite sucks, by the way, we're going pure just kind of macabre escapism this week. Uh, I know that serial killer episodes are, are many Time Suckers' favorites, and, well, it, it, if you do like it dark, uh, it really doesn't get any darker than Richard Ramirez. The man was just evil incarnate. Uh, thanks again for all the recent iTunes ratings and reviews. Thank you so much. Uh, they keep pouring in. They keep pumping me up, uh, spreading the suck. There's a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm so thankful that you choose this one to listen to and to promote. Every rating you give, every post you share, every time you, you post about the suck anywhere, it just it helps so much. Nothing like word of mouth uh, spreads the suck, and, and I thank you. Uh, bringing this year's Flat Earth Tour to a lot of new cities, and tickets are selling well. Uh, it has been fantastic. Uh, everywhere but Alabama. So come on, Alabama. Let's step that shit up. I'll be in Charlotte, North Carolina, April 8th, Atlanta on the 9th, Birmingham, Alabama on the 10th, Huntsville, Alabama. Got to get those NASA employees to come hear some flat earth jokes on the 11th, Nashville on the 12th, Houston on the 13th, Dallas on the 14th, San Antonio on the 15th, and then the next weekend I'll be in Salt Lake City and San Fran after that. May, I'm coming to Sacramento and Phoenix, 
and doing another live Time Suck podcast in Spokane on May 6th. And, uh, and I got a couple new uh, late fall, uh, early winter dates that I got to post, including Portland, Oregon, Tacoma, Washington. So getting some uh, Northwest stuff up there. Uh, very late in the year, going to have a, uh, another live podcast in Portland. So excited for that. Uh, more tour dates at uh, dancummins.tv. And I keep forgetting, I keep forgetting, I'm not in. I didn't even mean to do that. It actually just started to pop out. I keep forgetting, I'll be doing a, uh, a cruise early next year, March 7th through the 11th, 2019, with those glorious bastards, those, uh, those old fun hounds, Tom and Dan, mm-hmm, the mediocre time guys. Yep. We're going to sail out of uh, Port Canaveral on May 7th, and we're going to head straight into the heart of the Bermuda Triangle and never return. No, not sure where we're going, actually, other than out to sea. Uh, and we'll return on the 11th, and it's going to be a blast. There's going to be a bunch of hangouts, some live podcasting to be done, some drinks, some merriment to be had and shared. Uh, you can put a hold on a cabin for just 25 bucks if you're interested. Tom and Dan Cruz is always sell out, and this one will be no different. Looking forward to it. Hope I remember to get an L. Ron Hubbard Sea Org Captain's hat for my journey, and hope some of you can make it. Uh, Lindsay will also be there uh, if you like her more than me. Why not? Uh, TomandDanCruz.com for more info. And quick word of condolence to loyal sucker Aaron Mayo, who just lost his pet and family member Stella the Cat just the other day. Uh, I know that stings, and sorry for your loss. A lot of fantastic updates. On Monday's Gun Suck at the end, bonus suck 19, Richard Ramirez, right now. All right, so the Night Stalker. Why suck him? Well, as far as serial killers go, uh, he may scare me the most. Some serial killers seem to still possess some kind of portion of humanity within them, right? Like they're fucked up monsters, all of them, but, but most to me still seem a little human. Like take Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, I, I almost felt sorry for him when we did that suck. He just seemed uh, he seemed almost mentally handicapped. He seemed aware that there was something really wrong with him. He seemed to feel kind of bad about who he was. You know, he was trying to create a sex zombie. He was sadistic, to be sure, but also just delusional and pathetic. You know, it seemed, seemed childish in a way, kind of similar to Ed Gein, who just seemed like a, a fucked up kid in a way, or BTK, huge monster, but also able to convince a family and kids he raised into thinking he was a good guy. When he came to his family, he actually was a good guy. He actually did care about him. It was the occasional stranger he really didn't care about, and he was capable of doing the most horrible things to them. But with Richard Ramirez, there just there appeared to be no good in him. Like there's there's no like, oh, but he did this that was nice, like at all. Nothing as an adult. He just seemed to be pure, unadulterated evil, like like Ted Bundy, but worse. I mean, even Ted Bundy at least tried to hide the fact that he was evil. Even Bundy, you know, like saved lives on a suicide hotline, uh, saved a kid from drowning once. Richard would have fucking just watched the kid drown and laugh. He would have tried to talk people into killing themselves if he worked as a suicide hotline operator. He was just, yeah, just, I, I, I can't think of a, a comparable person to him that I've come across. So uh, as we do here on The Suck when it comes to biographical-based episodes, let's start at the beginning with this week's topic uh, with the Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. February 29th, 1960, Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas, the fifth child of Mexican immigrants, Mercedes and Julian Ramirez. It was Ruth, Ruben, Richard, Robert, and Joseph. His father was a Mexican national, former Juarez policeman, who later became a laborer on the Santa Fe Railroad. He was a hardworking man prone to fits of anger that often resulted in the physical abuse of his family. His mother, Mercedes, was a respected archaeologist from Mexico City 
who'd walked away from a promising career in Mayan temple excavation and interpretation before marrying Julian. And that's not true. That's nonsense. No, she had a first grade education. She worked at a boot factory uh, where she was exposed to chemical fumes when she was pregnant with Richard. That, that sounds more like the mom of a serial killer. Uh, she worked at the Tony Lama boot factory, mixing pigments and chemicals used on the boots. She was mixing chemicals such as benzene, xylene, tuline. And unfortunately, in this era, uh, in that era, the toxicity of those chemicals was not known. All the siblings had birth defects, like literally all of them, uh, ranging from respiratory difficulty to bone deformities. Specifically, when pregnant with Richard, uh, the fumes she was inhaling made her weak and nauseous and threatened the pregnancy. Uh, Doctors suspected her body was trying to reject the child she was carrying. Uh, If she had rejected it, so many other lives would have been saved. Uh, And when Richard was in the womb, doctors noticed he had two little horns on his head and a spiky tail and a little teeny baby pitchfork. Uh, no, that's not true, but I, but after you hear about today's story, you wouldn't be surprised if it was. Uh, so basically Richard was uh, born with tons of advantages, uh, poor check, poor and new to this country, member of a then unpopular minority group, check your check, physical abuse, check mom with first grade education, constantly breathing toxic fumes while pregnant at a boot factory. Mm-hmm, check, uh, both parents working long hours, pretty much every day, sometimes into the night and, uh, not around to raise the kids. Check. 1962, Richard suffers the first of two significant head wounds as a child uh, when a dresser, um, uh, yeah, he's age two, and when a dresser falls on him and lacerates his forehead. Now, I, I also had a dresser fall on me at two and cut my head open enough to leave a scar I still have, and I'm totally normal, as all of you know. Uh, I'm very, a very sound mind. As I write this, I'm looking at a painting in my own face here in the suck dungeon uh, with fire in my eyes and also a small glass skull half covering my face. Uh, it's a little replica thingy. So that's normal, right? It's normal to have that stuff in your life. I never had to get stitches for my little head wound. Uh, Richard's forehead laceration required 30 stitches uh, to close it, and the blow knocked him unconscious. So maybe he got hit a little harder than I did. Got his, got his egg a little more scrambled. 1965, at the age of five, he was knocked unconscious from a swing, started experiencing epileptic seizures, and his family took him to the doctor, and then he uh, uh, went and saw a series of specialists and ended up spending about a, about a year at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where he was continually studied and treated by the best pediatricians and epilepsy specialists in the world. Yeah, right. Uh, no mention of what treatment, if any, he received. Uh, I'm guessing around none. Richard's father, Julian, was an abusive parent, uh, you know, as his father was before him. If Mercedes or any of the kids did anything that just Julian considered wrong, uh, they were just physically beaten. Normally with the belt, sometimes with the fist. He was a strict disciplinarian, firm believer in corporal punishment, uh, mom took solace, uh, you know, away from the home violence into the cat in the Catholic church where she, uh, she and the kids were heavily involved. Gotta say, this doesn't seem that atypical in the context of the era, you know, before the eighties, I feel like just a lot of physical punishment was just kind of doled out just the norm parents, you know, uh, by and large, just kind of beat the shit out of their kids. My dad and his brothers got beat all the time. My, my grandma chased them around with the hot wheel track. Like, uh, that's what, that's, that's what my dad would call it. But I'm, mean, you know, he meant like one of those little, uh, those little tracks where you get the, the cars in the grooves. It's like two cars. I don't know if you ever had one of those toys as a kid and you each got a little button you push and they just, it's fucking janky. It never worked that, that well. And then they just kind of zip around some predetermined course, but you could get to assemble the tracks. So basically just pieces of very hard, I guess, what prefabricated plastic or something like a hard, and she would just fucking beat them with that better than a baseball bat, you know, uh, worse than a hand. She would just swing wildly, hit them wherever she could land a good blow. My grandpa paddled her asses with a belt. Uh, teachers paddled in a class. Everybody, everybody got smacked a lot back then, including sadly a lot of wives. So while I think this is super fucked up, it wasn't uh, also that odd for living in an impoverished neighborhood in 1960s, 1970s America. And I'm guessing spankings came a little looser, a little faster, 
little more heat coming towards the butt in Texas than in certain other states. Uh, what is interesting to note about his childhood is that uh, throughout the 1950s, or I guess also interesting to note, uh, the military was conducting nuclear bomb tests in nearby New Mexico, not far from Roswell, America's butthole. And as it happened, uh, the fallout from the bombs was carried by the wind to settle in El Paso, affect the landscape, cattle, and people, infected milk, meat, and water. All of the Ramirez children, again, were born with uh, you know, various problems, from res- respiratory difficulty to Collier's disease. You know, uh, Reuben, Richard's older brother, was actually permanently disabled. So good chance Richard's brain did not come out of the womb at like 100% full power. Uh, maybe some wires got crossed where sadism and empathy are concerned. By the late 60s, young Richard attended grade school, and he did well. Classmates would remember him fondly, so uh, apparently the head wounds and all those chemicals his pregnant mom had inhaled hadn't turned him into an obvious future murderer and psychopath quite yet. Uh, Joe Pignon, a classmate of his, claimed as a kid that Richard was super friendly and charismatic. He claimed he had tons of friends, even some uh, little girlfriends. He was close to his siblings, especially his older brother Joseph, you know. Uh, Richard was protective of Joseph, again, the one with, uh, you know, had some pretty severe mental deficiencies and even some physical deformities. He would protect him, even though he's five years younger from bullies. However, he wasn't able to protect him from one of his teachers. When Joe was placed into a slow learner's class, he fell prey to that class's child molesting teacher. The teacher would visit the Ramirez uh, home when the parents were away. This would happen when around, when Richard was around eight or nine and he, and he witnessed his then 14 year old brother getting abused sexually. It was suspected though never confirmed that Richard may have been sexually abused as well. Uh, maybe that uh, kind of started a growing rage within him. Other than his problems with epileptic seizures, he was considered to be healthy, although, although hyper and aggressive. His mother claimed him to be a lovely child, uh, which doesn't mean a lot to me. You know, moms are fairly delusional a lot of times when it comes to serial killers. Uh, you know, he was, he was a kid uh, always dancing, laughing, and giggling, according to her. Richard was raised Catholic, as I said, as I guess most Mexican-Americans in the, in the early 1970s probably were, especially, uh, you know, uh, in the southern half of the states. While his father's physical abuse of the family continued throughout most of his childhood, he found refuge in the company of his mom and sister. Mom and sister, uh, Ruth, doted on him. Ruth would watch over him as best she could regarding her dad, who would fly into rages so severe. He even occasionally beat himself, once bashed himself in the head with a hammer, splitting his head open. So that's, uh, yeah, that's a guy who, I guess, really spreads it around. You know, he, he was, He's fucking mad at the family. He's going to beat them, and when he's mad at himself, he's going to beat himself. Um, ironically, though, his sister and mom were loving and giving. He grew to have a deep hatred of women. And uh, by 1970, at the age of 10, Richard started smoking that weed, uh, which may seem crazy, but this was the 70s. Actually, having a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old kid, it does seem crazy. It does. I would be more shocked than upset if I walked in on Kyler or Monroe hitting some bong. Like, I can't even, I can't even genuinely picture that. It just doesn't make sense in my brain. Like, at, that, I, at all. Like, if that happened, uh, 10? That's like Monroe, my daughter's age. I cannot imagine her smoking weed. It just seems cartoonish. If that happened, I feel like I'd be more worried about my own mental health than anything. I'd be convinced that I'd had some kind of psychotic break and I was just hallucinating the the entire experience. There's no way, no way my sweet babies are hitting that naughty grass. By 1972, 12-year-old Richard, smoking weed, and like all future upstanding citizens, sniffing that glue, bruh. Yeah, bruh. You're not cool unless you're high on glue. How are you ever going to grow up, uh, you know, and graduate from law school unless you sniff that glue, bruh? Uh, yeah, around that time, Richard's cousin Miguel, a.k.a. Mike, got back from Vietnam, and it fucked him up. Uh, Mike was a decorated Green Beret and also a misogynist psychopath. Uh, according to Richard, when he was 12, Mike showed him photographs of himself raping a Vietnamese woman while he was in the service. 
going through a sequence of uh, detailed photographs. Richard came to the last picture. The picture was of the same rape victim's severed head held by Mike, positioned so that the victim's mouth was placed around his penis. Holy shit. Now, all we have to believe this actually happened is the word of a convicted rapist, pedophile, and murderer. But can you imagine if that is true? Can you imagine how, how that would have rocked your 12-year-old world? How unbelievably fucked that would have been. And, and Mike and Richard spent a lot of time together for about a year smoking weed, maybe sniffing a little glue, bruh. Mike openly fantasizing about his Vietnam, Vietnam rape and murder and more future rapes. Just, you know, just bros being bros. Man, my God, the, the childhood some people have. I appreciate my little hometown of Riggins, Idaho more and more and more as I get older. Uh, Richard later admits that he was especially sexually aroused by the photographs of the rape and murder victim that Michael showed him. He knew it was wrong to feel that way, but he couldn't talk to anyone about it because he, he knew he'd get his cousin Mike in a lot of trouble. So, man, how important, this just makes me think, how important it is, it is to monitor your kids as they're going through puberty. Make sure they're not making some you know, horrific associations regarding sex. Like, how often does this come up with sexually deviant serial killers? Right? They make a horrible sexual association in their adolescence, and they just can never shake it. Right? They get exposed to rape, molestation, some other deviant sexual behavior, and then that early association ends up manifesting itself later on in their sex life. Like I remember my mom being really particular about what I beat off to. Right? Like We would have talks each week. She would, she would check in with me. How many times did I beat off? Uh, what was I beating off to? Um, how long did it take me to beat off? What, what position was I in when I was beating off? And looking back, I'm glad she did. I'm glad she, she, would, uh, she would film a lot of it for review. But, uh, she would show the, 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 the videos to the rest. <laughs> I'm fucking making that is, uh, I just Can you imagine if I just like threw that out there as if it was normal? It's like, yeah, you know, it's like with, with your kids, you got you to gotta check in. You got to make sure they're, uh, you know, making the proper sexual associations. You got to check in with their masturbation schedules. That's <laughs> so fucking ridiculous. No, my mom was actually very particular about, uh, I'm just picturing my mom listening to this now and be like, what? what? No, I never did that. Um, but she was particular about who I hung out with, you know, because, and, and I get it, you know, because, you know, you hang out with the wrong crowd and it can fuck you up forever. Seeing pictures of your cousin raping and then killing and beheading and practicing necrophilia on someone that doesn't turn you into a rapist and serial killer necessarily, but I feel like it does guarantee you're going to have to work a little harder than the average bear not to end up totally fucked up later. And then the next year, 73, Richard watches that same cousin murder his fiance, Jesse, after an argument at home right in front of him. Uh, Mike shot Jesse in the face right in front of Richard during an argument and then told Richard to leave before the police showed up and not to say a word about it. Well, the police did show up and they took Mike to jail and he was charged with murder and ended up being found not guilty by reason of insanity. And he was just sent to a mental health facility where sadly he'd only be held for four, four years. Now, this was around the time when Richard began to truly become a monster. Of course he did. Dude had a monster for a mentor when he was 12. That's exactly how you become a monster yourself. If only he would have been able to get a hold of issue 256 of Pootie and Juju. Pootie hits the pipe. In this memorable all-time classic issue, Juju suddenly notices that Pootie isn't acting like his or her normal self. Right? Pootie's suddenly staying up past midnight instead of getting in bed by 9 p.m. at the latest, as he or she had done for decades. Pootie wasn't up with the roosters anymore in the morn. Now Pootie's sleeping until noon. Noon. No more three square meals. No single cookie and milk before bedtime. Now Pootie is snacking on sugary breakfast cereals that aren't healthy, like super sugar crisps, honeycombs, sugar smacks, lucky charms at all hours of the day. Pootie doesn't do much of anything but lay on the couch, eat Pringles, Doritos, Twinkies, and laugh way too hard at the Brady Bunch. Sure, it's kind of funny, but it's no mash. 
It's no Bob Newhart show. It sure as shit isn't Sanford and Sons. And that's when Juju finds out that Pootie has been smoking weed. Gasp, shock, horror. Juju soon discovers that Pootie has quit working at the post office and now works at a, <gasps> a record shop. A known hippie hotbed. Even worse, Juju finds tickets Pootie has bought to see known weed smokers. Ugh, the Doobie Brothers. Well, Illinois Central and a Southern Central Freight. Got to keep on pushing mama. You know they're running late without love. Dun, dun, dun. Where would you be right now without love? Without love. You just got pre-Michael McDonald. He joined the band a few years later. Concerned for Pootie's safety, Juju confronts Pootie when Juju catches Pootie in the middle of a bog, of, of a big old uh, full bo- long bong toke. Put down the pop, Pootie. Please put down the pop. Pootie, through a plume of smoke, yells back, You sure squawk a lot for someone who ain't never said nothing know how. And then, put in your lunchbox, Shirley. And then Juju starts to cry. And Pootie tells Juju, Juju, he or she will cut back. Only evening puffs from now on. No more wake and bake. Juju screams, Too little, too dead, Pootie. And then slaps Pootie in his hair or her face. And this breaks a spell that the powerful weed had over Pootie. And then Pootie throws away the devil weed pipe, quits working at the filthy record shop, gets rehired at the post office, a respectable job, and by the next night, Pootie and Juju are watching the new Dick Van Dyke show and in bed by 8.15 p.m. like reasonable citizens. And all is right in the Pootie and Juju world. And I'm back. Sorry, if you're a new listener, uh, you are probably very confused right now or just not listening anymore. That was just little Pootie and Juju with a weird kind of Michael McDonald thing thrown in the middle. You'll get used to it. Stuff like that happens here and there. Or at least, you know, maybe you'll learn to tolerate it. <laughs> Anywho, back to Ramirez. By the time Cousin Mike goes away, Richard starts to really change. He begins to roam the neighborhood at night, looking in women's windows. He's a peeping Tom now, or I guess more accurately, a peeping dick. Because, you know, his, his name is Richard. Uh, that's corny, I know. If only this was as far as he'd take it. He starts sneaking out of the house at night and heading to a nearby cemetery, falling asleep during occasion. Praying to the devil after giving up on Christianity, he is, yeah, he's completely out of his mind. In 1974, Richard enrolls in Jefferson High School, and 14-year-old Richard's uh, classmates notice a change in him. Former classmate, again, Joe, uh, Joe Pignon, claims he no longer looked like a normal kid. He looked dirty, looked like life had changed him. Another classmate of his, Letitia, uh, recalls a moment she saw him in a dark hallway at school. They were walking opposite directions. They didn't say anything to each other. She remembers uh, he looked up at her, and they made eye contact, and for some reason, she was terrified. Uh, she, has, uh, she was listening to her inner voice, listening to her gut, and it was not, uh, not steering her in the wrong direction. Uh, it wasn't long until he dropped out of high school before the end of freshman year, snagged a job at a local Holiday Inn, and uh, not for the money, as it turns out, for the opportunities. Strangely, to this day, Holiday Inn does not mention Richard Ramirez anywhere in their literature, not in their commercials, not in their brochures. Not on their website. They don't have a big cardboard cutout of him with a pentagram on his palm uh, when you walk into their lobbies. You know, no, uh, welcome to Holiday Inn, former employee of serial rapist and murderer Richard the Night Stalker Ramirez, who used to have unlimited access to guest rooms. Sleep tight, motherfuckers. Now, it is a bit disturbing, though, isn't it? He had a master key to get into all the rooms, and he apparently started sneaking into female guest rooms and watching them. He's like, just like a real-life boogeyman, just hiding in the closet. Like a real-life just shadow Chikatilo. No, no, you do not do this. This is Night Stalker episode. He nearly is creepy. He may be more creepy than Chikatilo. I know she'll steal show. What is big deal? I saw a jerk same cock so many episodes ago. You have nothing new to talk about. You think you trick Time Sucker listeners by calling Chikatilo Shadow Chikatilo? It's Shadow Chikatilo, Shadow Chikatilo, Chikatilo. It's a slight name, different names for the same creep. 
Besides, much murder and jerking behind, it's behind Chikatilo now. The past is past. I focus on wrestling academy. I focus on business. Please, get back to the episode. I have to make flyer to make, sweatpants to make mess of. Sorry, last episode was so serious and sensitive. I just am getting uh, like two sucks worth of weirdness out of my system in one. Uh, by team, by, by his, uh, uh, by team Ramirez. Yeah, he really was like a real life boogeyman. One night, hiding in a guest room, he watched a woman undress, take a shower. And then he decided that he was uh, done just watching. As she got out of the shower, he grabs her, clamps his hand over her mouth, and starts to rape her. Somewhat luckily, uh, as luckily, I guess, in the situation as it can be when you're already being raped, her husband enters the room shortly after the assault has began and, and beats Richard almost to death. If only he had beaten Ramirez to death. Uh, the cops were called. Richard was booked, taken to court. But unfortunately, the couple wanted nothing more to do with the whole situation. Right, The victim, understandably, never wanted to see Richard's face again, and they refused to return to El Paso, and the charges were unfortunately dropped. And so, uh, young Richard got away with rape. This no doubt fueled his ego and uh, you know, made him feel invincible, that he was above punishment. This, too, comes up too much with a variety of serial killers, man. Early close calls that go unpunished. Bundy narrowly avoided capture early on. So did BTK. So did Gacy, if you'll recall. You know, he got that early sodomy charge, but no, no real punishment. I mean, he went to jail, but not for, not for long. I guess he went to prison, but still not for long. Close calls breed craftiness, uh, and it makes these guys harder to catch later on, I feel like. 1977, Crazy Cousin Mike is released from the mental uh, institution he's been staying at for a few years after murdering his wife. Uh, seems like a bad decision to let him go. Uh, he and Rich spend some more quality family time together. Just, you know, hanging out, smoking weed, fantasizing about rape. Uh, no turning back for Richard now. His dark identity and future are pretty much sealed. He hangs around El Paso for a few more months and then, uh, you know, gets by by breaking into homes, stealing cars, picking up a healthy late 70s coke habit. And then in 1978, at age 18, Richard moves to Los Angeles uh, where he gets an acting gig. And he was on a sitcom for four years. He was actually an all in the family. He had a, a small role. Uh, you can see him in the background a lot of time, just kind of hiding in closets. Uh, it was just like a, a weird, no, none of that. Of course, that didn't happen. No, he just lives on the streets. He becomes an alcoholic and a coke addict, uh, which is great news for everybody. You know, if there's one thing a, a teen peeping Tom rapist and devil worshiper needs, it's an addiction to coke. Uh, he hangs out with other drifters and lowlifes around the bus station downtown, lives for uh, a time in a really rundown kind of shanty house about a quarter mile from the police station. Still best buds with Satan. Uh, still way into the devil worship, even traveled to San Francisco to visit, uh, to visit a coven of devil worshipers around this time. At one point he had the opportunity to join, you know, like, like this organized satanic cult, but he decided against it. They just, they just weren't into Satan. Like he was into Satan. You know, he just, he just wasn't feeling their satanic interpretation. Like they were kind of evil, but he wanted to be like full evil. Uh, he drifts around LA for a few years, doing a lot of drugs, committing a lot of crimes, a lot of burglary, a lot of carjackings, a lot of, uh, car theft. He was never charged. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. And, and he earned a reputation. He was charged. He, he did get arrested a few times. And he earned a reputation as a, as a pretty good car thief and burglar, though. He was arrested twice in L.A. Uh, for auto theft in 81 and then again in 84. Uh, in 83, Ramirez's mother and sister are worried enough about him that uh, his sister Ruth c- comes out to L.A. to find him and bring him home. And he actually tells uh, his sister Ruth that he is, he is under the protection of Lucifer and that he will never return home. Can you imagine a family member telling you some shit like that? Dad, mom, good news. Bad news about Rich. Uh, the good news is I found him and he's okay. He's actually being protected. Uh, the bad news is that he's being protected by the devil himself, uh, who he has sworn lifelong allegiance to, and he'll never be coming home again. That's just, I can't, I like, <laughs> I can't even imagine if somebody, you know, 
Like, if, or if I went to my sister, my sister was like a, a drifter now. And she was like, no, Danny, I'm good. I'm not coming home. Not coming home. The devil's got me. I've, I'm fine. I'm fine. Satan's keeping an eye out for me. Uh, around this time, before a second auto uh, theft arrest, Richard is also able to buy a master set of keys to Toyotas and Hondas. So he could get around back then um, still, you know, kind of at will, which, which was a thing. How crazy is that? You could get a master key for certain uh, automobiles. You still can't actually that would allow you to steal any of a particular make and model that you could find. Like, I didn't know that was possible before this week. Uh, yeah, check out this. Is, this is some research I found in a 2006 article on, on a police resource website where they said shaved keys have been around for decades. They're the most inexpensive and effective way to steal a wide variety of vehicles. In Northern California, the nation's top auto theft hotspot for the last three years running, shaved keys account for nearly half of all auto thefts. Shaved keys are known by other names as well, such as master keys or jigglers. They work by fitting into the vehicle's ignition and fooling the ignition system into believing it's the original key. Some of the keys will also uh, work on a vehicle's doors. The same key can be used on hundreds of cars before wearing out. Shaved keys can be made easily with the aid of any metal grinder or handheld file. In fact, many criminals will simply grind the key down on the edge of a sidewalk or rock. The method is just as effective, uh, providing they can just get the, the key thin enough to jiggle into the car's ignition. So some kind of technique. Toyota, Honda, and Saturn vehicles between the model years of 1980 and 1996 are the most common ones taken using shaved keys. These models use very similar ignition systems making them easily defeated with the use of a shaved key. Damn. Wow, man. Might want to rethink that, uh, that good deal you just got on that 95 Corolla. Now, plus side, easy to get in and drive home if you lose your key. Downside, easy to get in and drive to other people's homes by other people who don't have a key. Uh, so Ramirez would grab all kinds of cars with these master keys and then drive around LA looking for houses to rob. Steal a car to then find houses to steal more stuff from. Five months after he'd spoken with the sister, he's arrested for car theft. He was photographed, fingerprinted, spent six months in jail. Now he's in the system, but far from being done with crime. After getting out of jail in 84, uh, Ramirez got right back into stealing shit. With each robbery, his skills are improving. Within two years, you know, he, he's, uh, he's been robbing like up to two homes a night and then, and then selling, you know, whatever he would gather to a contact he'd made and then generally just get more, some coke and some hookers. Uh, strangely, while he frequented prostitutes, uh, he was never known to harm them. And that's just odd considering how frequently they are the primary target of serial killers. Uh, now, now that he'd become a master at burglarizing homes, he decided to up the ante and he began raping women and robbing them while he was through. And, uh, and this would quickly lead to his first kill. And we'll discuss all of his horrific murders as his timeline merges into some super scary stuff. Super scary stuff. All right, time suckers. This section of this episode is rated full Chikatilo. It is that dark and horrific. Uh, Lucifina strongly approves. So you, you have been warned. This is going to get more and more brutal. On, on April 10th, 1984, nine-year-old Mai Linda Luang uh, was beaten, stabbed, and raped in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. This case would go unsolved for 25 years. At the time of the murder, uh, Ramirez, he, he had moved up there briefly, and he lived about six blocks from the girl's apartment. Uh, Luang and her eight-year-old brother had gone to the basement at 765 O'Farrell Street to look for a dollar bill her brother had lost. Somehow they got separated. When Luang's brother returned about 30 minutes later, he found her lifeless body hanging from a pipe. Uh, there were never any strong suspects in the case. When investigators found her, her feet were just a few inches off the ground. And one of the arriving officers said that had she been a little taller, she could have transferred her weight to her feet on the ground and screamed and somebody could have come and helped her. Uh, Loing's death was described as a ritual-style slain 
and Ramirez was a known Satanist. Uh, if you can picture Christ on the cross, that's the way she looked. Her head was dropped and her chin down, recalled another investigator. Now, he, was t- he wasn't tied to the case until, ni- or until 2009 uh, through DNA, long after he was caught, but, but he was never charged. By then, he was already awaiting execution on, on death row. And, uh, and I think this is, this is that when he was up in the Bay Area for a little bit, uh, looking into that satanic coven he was thinking about joining, and this could have been some kind of ritual killing. So that was, uh, uh, or it also could have been just, you know, wrong place, wrong time. He really, he, he, at this point, he still wasn't uh, going, you know, really like full steam into, into murder like he would be here soon. A little over two months later, 79-year-old Jenny Vinkow, Vinkow was found dead in her apartment. Uh, she'd been stabbed repeatedly and her throat was slashed so severely she was almost decapitated. Jenny's son, Jack, would later testify at Ramirez's trial. He said it is, uh, him and his mother lived at the same apartment building. The last time he saw her alive was the afternoon of June 27th, 1984. He found his mother's body nearly 24 hours later. And, uh, you know, called her name several times, got no response. Uh, when I saw she was dead, I shouted to the manager, my mother's been murdered. The dead of the night, Richard uh, Ramirez had removed the screen to her apartment window, uh, brutally killing her in bed while she slept. It was, a, it was a blood orgy of brutality that shocked the world. You know, he had uh, lost control, repeatedly stabbing her and slashing her throat so deeply that she was, uh, again, nearly decapitated when police found her body. And then he, uh, then he had sex with a corpse. Jesus. At the morgue, the police covered a key piece of evidence in the form of a fingerprint. However, they couldn't do much with it back then. Uh, they, they could only, it could, it could help link a suspect to a crime after he had already been kind of apprehended. But at that time, the Department of Justice had 16 million fingerprints in master files, all in hard copy. They were developing a computerized fingerprint system that just wasn't up and running quite yet. But it would be uh, instrumental in, later in catching Ramirez. After murdering Jenny uh, Vicow, the killer slipped deeper and deeper into intravenous coke uh, addiction. The drug became his life. And, th- and that murder, by the way, was back in the L.A. area. He'd come down from San Francisco. He was up there, you know, briefly, come back, and, and that's where he'd do the overwhelming majority of his killings would actually be in the, the valley, kind of the, uh, you know, around Burbank, Glendale, Monrovia, up in that Pasadena kind of area of the world. And he's gotten really into coke now. And, and he, he, to get it, he needed money, which he routine, routinely secured by committing burglaries, frequently two to, to three a day. And, uh, yeah, he was constantly stealing stuff. He would always wear gloves, always wear black. He'd, he'd silently slink in and out of people's homes, never leaving a clue. He'd take, you know, coin, money, stamp collections, uh, televisions, VCRs, Android machines, whatever he thought he could sell, whatever he could fence and quickly turn over into, into money. Sleeping, eating, washing didn't matter much to him. He, he walked with a kind of, you know, leathery smell about him, and odor witnesses would later describe to police and talk about in court. He had no friends. He was very untrusting of people. He was a consummate loner. Uh, and usually he just stayed in his room from from sundown to sunrise, shooting up coke, watching MTV, listening to heavy metal music. He was way into ACDC, uh, fantasizing about extreme sexual violence, watching people suffer, squirm, and die. Man, uh, just, a, just a sick, sick son of a bitch. Um, he felt certain the demons and Satan were protecting him and watching over him, thought he'd never get caught. Yeah, I told, I told you this dude was dark. Uh, he actually thought the devil and demons were his friends. Over six months later, now this is when things really, really, uh, he goes on like a true, I guess, just killing spree. Uh, this is February 21st, 1985. Sisters Christina and Mary Caldwell, ages 58 and 71, were found dead in their home. They'd each been stabbed dozens of times. A few more victims for the Night Stalker, uh, which extra creepy is a sneaky way. He, you know, he would stalk a lot of these victims. Like, uh, like on March 17th, 1985, so just, uh, what, I guess uh, less than a month after that previous one, he follows Maria Hernandez home, creeping into her garage with her as she pulled into the park. Maria Hernandez was a petite, attractive brunette with large, round eyes, clear olive skin. 
And Richard spotted her on the freeway as she was driving her gold Camaro home from dinner at a boyfriend's house in Monterey Park. As she left the freeway and made her way into the suburb of Rosemead, a little lovely residential community of 46,000, uh, he exited just behind her. He followed her three blocks before she slowed and took right uh, right into the new condominium community on Village Lane. He trailed her into the complex, watched her take a left and a right, and pulled into the last garage at the back of the condo she shared with her roommate, Dale Ozaki, or Okasaki, uh, whose green Toyota wagon was already parked in the garage. Earlier that evening, Dale, 14 days away from her 35th birthday, had been visiting her mom and dad, watching TV and talking. She was, she was pleased at a recent promotion, traffic supervisor with L.A. County. Dale was one of the uh, three children from a close, supportive, loving family. She had attended Pasadena City College. She was an avid skier, taking classes in cake decorating, flower arranging, computer programming, and self-defense. She was a highly motivated woman, loved life, made the most out of it. She saved hard to buy the condominium she now shared with Maria. And when Maria stepped out of the car, uh, luckily she was holding her car keys. That's going to come up very handy in a second. Uh, The entrance to her house was this door on the side of the garage. She walked towards it, moved around two cars. On the wall near the door was a button that opened and closed the garage. She pushed it. Door began to close. At that moment, Ramirez, even out, you know, watching her, bent down, snuck under the garage door, walked straight towards Maria while her back was still to him. Uh, he raised his twenty-two pistol, aimed it directly at her head. She had to uh, open two locks to get into her house, and when she opened one, she heard a little noise behind her. Perhaps it was uh, the ACDC hat that had just fallen off of Ramirez's head when he kind of snuck under the garage door. She turns towards the noise. He's a good 20 feet away, walking towards her, pointing the gun with two hands right between her eyes. She could actually see down the barrel. No, God, please don't. She screams, automatically raising her right hand that had the keys. He kept coming, and when the gun was two feet from her face, the garage door finishing closing and the light automatically going out uh, puts him in sudden darkness. And at that instant, he fires, but the, but the bullet is miraculously deflected by the keys. Like, fucking how incredibly lucky is that? And then she goes down, plays dead. She's not even wounded. Uh, Ramirez steps over her body, enters the house, where then he spots uh, her roommate, Dale, who would not be so lucky. Maria gets up as soon as the door from the garage to the house shuts and uh, runs out into an alley. Once Ramirez is inside, her roommate, Dale, wearing a baggy Dodgers T-shirt, faded jeans, she had straight shoulder-length black hair, young, beautiful woman, heart-shaped face, full round lips, got everything going for her, but she then spots Ramirez. She hits the floor, hides behind a counter, hoping he hadn't seen her. He had. He stayed by the door waiting for her to move. And when she pops up to kind of peek and look over the counter, he fires and shoots her right in the forehead. You know, she's, she's dead immediately. Uh, he then runs out into the alley where he finds Maria who begged him not to shoot her again. And, and, and uh, maybe thinking he just needed to jet before the cops show up, he bolts. And, and you know, he leaves behind a, a dead body and his first eyewitness to murder. Uh, sexually revved up from the fresh killing, but frustrated by not getting the chance at a sexual release, he immediately starts looking for a new victim. And he finds one just uh, about an hour later. Ramirez spots a petite Veronica Yu as she exited the freeway at Monterey Park. Predominantly Asian community with a population of 65,000, about seven miles east of L.A. And it has its own police department. And Yu, a 30-year-old law student, she's tired. She's been visiting a close childhood friend, June Wang. They've been talking for hours. She's heading home. It's St. Patrick's Day. Neither of the women had to work. And um, uh, when Veronica noticed that a man in, in a Toyota was trailing her, she started looking for a police car. After another block, she pulled over to the curb, stopped her car to get a better look at him. Ramirez passed by, and then Veronica made the biggest mistake of her life. She started following him back. She wanted to know who was following her. Never do this, time suckers. Never do this. Just get their license plate, get the number, file a police report if you're worried. Go on about your life. Tell your friends and your family if you're worried. Make sure you lock your doors at night. 
Make sure your windows are locked. Make sure you have a solid security system if you can afford it. Try and afford to have one of those. It's important. You know, not to tie this to last week, but, you know, might, might want to have a self-defense weapon at home. You know, if you're anti-gun, uh, you know, I, I hope you're, uh, you know, pro-mace or that you know Krav Maga or something. So Ramirez has driven ahead. Veronica could leave now, but doesn't. She follows him, and after only a block, he catches a red light on North Alhambra Avenue, pleasant little two-way street, leads directly to the I-10 freeway. He shuts the lights, gets out of the car, approaches Veronica, who's parked behind him, the 22 pistol he just killed Dale with, tucked into his waistband. Veronica opens her window and asks the night stalker, why you follow me? And I swear it was written that way in a book I found this info in. I'm not just uh, doing a, a patronizing Asian accent. She's like, why you follow me? And uh, Ramirez claims as a witness across the street would, would say later, I'm not following. I thought I knew you. And she says, no, you didn't. She's arguing with him now. You follow me. Why? What you want? Uh, she stares at him in disbelief. Her almond-shaped eyes, dark and angry. I wasn't. I thought I knew you, he repeats. She still could leave. But she's like, she still keeps confronting him. Liar, she says. I'm calling the police. Uh, nope, nope. She, no, she would not do that because Ramirez then reaches out and grabs Veronica by the shoulders, tries to pull her uh, in through the fucking window. She starts to scream. So he couldn't get her, you know, in that way. He, the driver's door is locked. He couldn't open it. So he, uh, he notices the passenger door is not locked. And, and, uh, and sorry, pulled her out of the window earlier. He's standing outside the car. So then he g- jumps over her car, reaches out to open the door. Quickly, Veronica moves her right hand to try and lock the passenger door. Not in time. He gets into the car with her. Uh, what do you want? She pleads. You know, he says nothing. Just pulls out the twenty-two, shoots her in the side, under her arm, 17 inches from the top of her head. She then opens the door to flee. And he shoots her again, this time in the lower back. She gets out of the car, loses the shoe, wobbles a few feet, and then just drops where she'd bleed out and die. Ah, when the media finds out the police had connected these uh, uh, two uh, murders in the days that followed, Ramirez is initially dubbed the walk-in killer or the valley intruder. These initial murders, while there was definitely a sexual aspect to them in the sense that the violence turned him on, uh, the sexual part was kind of like the, the it was collateral. It was uh, collateral damage. It's, it's thought that the, with the first little girl he killed, that, uh, you know, again, he, he may have been in the basement with the intent to rob, not kill. Maybe it was some weird satanic thing, uh, but probably just an opportunity randomly uh, presented itself. Same with the murders of the Caldwell sisters. Robbery is probably the, the primary motivator there. The subsequent murder of Dale uh, Okasaki was motivated by the desire to kill, but he was still primarily there to rob. Uh, he was a junkie and wanted the drug money. And then the murder of Veronica Yu was just kind of more impulsive than anything. But, but, but after these murders, uh, he starts thinking you know, long and hard about who he is and what he wants to do. And he decides, just makes it like an actual mental decision, to commit himself to sadistic domination, to murder. He decides that, that murder is the ultimate high, and it's what his life is going to be all about going forward. Uh, he believes in his heart that, that the more heinous and vicious his assaults are, the more Satan will be pleased with him and, and afford him some kind of fiery blessings. And, and this is why Ramirez freaks me out more than most serial killers. Again, uh, most of them possess some type of humanity. You know, again, Bundy brutalized, raped, and murdered, but also, like I said, worked as a suicide hotline operator. You know, again, he saved a kid from drowning. You know, John Wayne Gacy tortured boys, raped him, and buried him in his basement crawl space, but also volunteered with the JCs and raised money for various charities. Dennis Rader, you know, a.k.a. BTK, tortured and killed women and children, also volunteered as a Cub Scout leader, also was active in his church. You know, even Chikatilo, that piece of shit, was a doting grandfather. Sometimes I'm not a bad guy. Sometimes I buy ice cream instead of rascal and joke. Uh, yeah, most serial killers lead dual lives. You know, one public, seemingly good life, doing all the right things to put society at ease. And then one private, evil as hell life. But Ramirez didn't have the fake good side component. He, he was just bad. His day job was robbing homes and just, you know, shooting up coke. 
stealing cars for drug money. His night job was more stealing, you know, uh, was rape and torture. Like he actually, he actually planned, he had a plan to steal enough money to buy his own house somewhere quiet and set up a torture room in the basement where he could just, you know, just uh, kill in privacy and torture and rape. Yeah, he had, he had visions of filming his conquests and, and selling them on some kind of black, uh, you know, market snuff film, you know, place. Ah, if the dark web would have been around, you know, back then, he would have been all over that. Old cousin Miguel had really messed him up. Uh, less than two weeks later, uh, the Night Stalker's back on the prowl. And before we talk about what he got up into, uh, let's check in with today's sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Lisa. Maybe Richard Ramirez would have stayed in school and not been a murderous piece of shit if he'd only had a proper bed to sleep on. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, Lisa is an innovative, direct-to-consumer, online mattress brand that is also socially conscious. For every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter. They have a patented universal adaptive feel. So Lisa is designed for, for all types of sleepers, features three premium foam layers, including a two-inch Avena foam top layer for cooling and breathability, two-inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief, six-inch dense core support for durability and structure, works for sleepers of all sizes. And again, I love mine. I've talked about it before. I love it. Sleep great on it. Couldn't ask for a better mattress. Uh, Maybe, again, Ramirez, more than anything, he was just fucking tired. Maybe the Night Stalker would have been a cuddle bunny. Would have been an old cuddle bunny if he was just a little more rested. I'm not saying that's true, but we don't know for sure that it's not. Anyway, Lisa has continued to expand, uh, to expand its offerings, including uh, uh, Lisa Pillow now, Blanket, uh, Foundation and Frame. So try Lisa Mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door. I know some other time suckers have gotten them, and they're loving them. Uh, try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. And get $125 off and a free pillow and a free pillow when you go to leesa.com slash timesuck. Or, or if you listen on the Timesuck app or go to the Timesuck website, you just click the sponsors from the little uh, menu. Just click sponsors and then click the Lisa logo and you go straight to the deal. I've made it so easy for you. All right. March 27th, 1985. Back to, back to darkness now. Ramirez approaches a home that he had burglarized a year earlier. These poor people in Whittier a city in L.A. County, 20 miles east of L.A., around 2 a.m. He creeps up to the lighted window. He sees Vincent uh, Zazara sleeping on a plaid couch. Television's on. There's a round black glass table in front of the couch. On it was a plant with bright red flowers. Mr. Zazara had apparently dozed off while watching television. And he was a fun-loving, gregarious man. He was a retired, certified personal accountant who, who now owned a couple of pizza restaurants. Taking note of where Vincent lay, he, uh, Ramirez continued on to the backyard, careful to avoid, you know, walking into anything. He was super quiet and sneaky. Uh, midway to the backyard, he looks in a second-story window, sees a 44-year-old wife of Vincent, Maxine, sound asleep in bed. He immediately gets sexually excited. He places an empty compound can under a, a window, another window, gets on it, reaches up, removes the screen, pries the window open, pulls himself up into a small room where there's a washing machine and dryer. He reaches down, unties, and takes off his shoes and his stocking feet, all fucking quiet and sneaky and evil. He starts towards an unsuspecting, soundly sleeping Vincent Zazara, pulls the twenty-two revolver from his waistband. As he reaches the front of the house, he raises the gun, holds it in the combat position, rushes into the den where Zazara had fallen asleep, aims carefully, shoots him in the left side of the head just above the ear. That's how, that's how he gets woken up, with a shot to the head. 
Shocked and bleeding, Dazara tries to stand up and grab the intruder with the gun, but the bullets bounced around his skull, pulverized his brain, and he slumps to the ground, still breathing, but quickly dying. At the sound of the gunshot, Maxine Dazara wakes up, wide-eyed, just as the killer rushes into her room, pointing the gun at her. She's screaming. He slaps her, screaming, shut up, bitch. Don't look at me. Where's the money? Where's the jewelry? Maxine demands uh, uh, she, that he leave, and then he beats her, telling her not to look at him, forces her under her stomach, ties her hands together with a necktie, gags her, take, he disables the phone lines, then he begins to frantically ransack the bedroom, opening closets and drawers, looking for diamonds, gold, cash, whatever he can find. Maxine knows there's a shotgun on the bed that her and her husband had bought the previous year after a burglary, saying that if the burglar came back, the burglar, by the way, being Ramirez, that, that, you know, that they'd blown to pieces, uh, she tries with every ounce of strength that she had to untie the knots binding her hands. When Richard looks around the house for whatever he could sell for drug money, she's able to get free, find that shotgun. She draws it, aims it at this sweating piece of shit. You know, he's throwing her possessions all over the place. His back is to her. He hears something, turns, sees her pointing the big board shotgun at him. He moves left, goes for his gun in the pants. She pulls the trigger, and there's only a metallic click. Fuck, the gun is empty. Man, this, ah, just a sad irony. Just, you know, that, that a gun that they had bought just a year before because Ramirez had broken in, and then they, ah, they forget to leave it loaded. Uh, man, these poor people. Robbed Ramirez uh, by Ramirez one year. Robbed again, and then terrorized and killed the next. So Ramirez screams, bitch, motherfucker, raises the 22, shoots her three times, bullets knock her down, but don't kill her. He beats her, kicks her, slaps her, furious that she would defy him, try to kill him. He hurries to the kitchen. He finds a sharp 10-inch long carving knife, returns to her, picks her up, puts her on the bed, raises her purple nightshirt, and tries to literally cut her heart out of her chest. So She's dead now, but uh, he, he can't cut through the rib cage. leaves a gaping inverted cross sliced into her chest over and below the left breast. Frustrated, he decides to, t- uh, this is, again, this is, sorry, this is going to be real bad. He decides to take her eyes. He feels this would be his way of taking a piece of her soul. Quickly, yet carefully, he cuts away her eyelids, removes both eyes, puts them in a little jewelry box he had found, laughing as he does so. Jesus! Ugh. He uh, stabs her in the stomach, throat, pubic area. After all that, he tries to have sex with her, but he's still too shaken up by, by, point, by her pointing the shotgun and pulling the trigger you know, at him. What a preposterous monster. Almost getting shot is what turned him off. Not the insane amount of blood and gore that he has created. Not the taking of life. Uh, this poor human being, this Maxine, alive moments before, now a bloody carcass, missing eyes, huge hole in her chest, stab wounds all over the place. I can only imagine how much blood is all over Ramirez and the rest of the room. He tries having sex with a mutilated body. He is beyond fucking monstrous. Why can't there be a special death row for crime, you know, people who do crimes as heinous, who commit crimes this bad? Like, you can appeal a week after your verdict, you get a new, maybe week-long trial at most, at most that long. And then if you're still found guilty, the judge just kills you in the middle of court. Like, the judge themselves, they get to kill you, and they give your body to the victim's families. Or you just get turned loose to the victim's family, and they get to kill you. Ugh, he's such a monster. Instead of pursuing necrophilia, you know, he just gathers what he, what he can of value, VCR, jewelry, watches, rings, puts them in a pillowcase, uh, grabs Maxine's forty-five, another shotgun, and he just takes back off into the night. And then he heads downtown to the Cecil Hotel where he's been staying. Remember that place? That's the hotel Elisa Lamb stayed at and died in, the one we covered in Time Suck 29. Uh, the hotel that was the basis for American Horror Story, season five, hotel. Creepy-ass hotel. Uh, washes himself up, meets the fence. He's always selling his stolen goods to, gets some cash. Then he goes and finds a prostitute who, who he uh, pays to let him play with her feet for a while. Seriously. Uh, he has sex with her feet, and then he drops her off. He's so fucking weird in, in so many ways. And then he drops off the car he's been driving a few miles away, takes a bus back to Cecil where he uh, plays with Maxine's eyes for real and thinks about how uh, Satan must be so happy with him. 
My, my God, he's cartoonishly evil. Uh, Vincent and Maxine's bodies were discovered by their son, Peter. Man, other than that vague description from Maria Hernandez earlier, the woman who was saved by the keychain, the police have no leads. They're not anywhere close to catching the son of a bitch. They're just starting to realize, you know, that they got a true serial killer on their hands. Uh, for the next seven weeks, he just steals cars, snorts coke, doesn't kill, that we know of. And then on the night of May 14th, 1985, 25-year-old sadist Ramirez creeps into the backyard of 66-year-old recently retired Santa Fe Trail Trucking Company sales manager, Bill Doy. Bill had just bought a brand new Ford van the day before, planning to tour the country in it with his 56-year-old wife, Lillian. Richard had just gotten rid of the 22 revolver, sold it to a fence for 20 bucks. He knew it was hot. And, uh, and, and tonight he had a new weapon, a silver-plated 22 automatic, semi-automatic. He slid the screen and quietly uh, climbed into uh, a rear bathroom, saying inside his head as he did so, Satan, this, what I, your humble servant, am about to do, I do for you. He's praying to the devil now. He's, uh, he's just, again, he, if you wrote this guy into a movie, it would seem dumb. It would seem too over the top. It would be like, get out of here. No one's that fucking evil. Come on, stop. But no, he, he was. He got down and low, waited, making sure he hadn't been heard. Seconds later, he, he, he's up, moving through the house. And after he sneaks in all creepy, there's a hallway light on. It was easy to see. In the first bedroom, he finds an elderly Asian woman, uh, Bill's wife, Lillian's, sleeping, you know, soundly. He sees a wheelchair next to her bed, which tells him that, you know, she's, she's not a, uh, a threat. And, uh, and he, so he moves on to search the rest of the house, finds the bedroom of Bill Doy, raises the gun, chambers it. Cold metallic click wakes Bill up instantly. He knew what it was. He grabs for a loaded 9mm he kept in the nightstand, and he just wasn't quite quick enough. And, uh, and as he's grabbing his nine, uh, you know, Richard runs after, uh, runs up to him and shoots him in the upper lip right through the tongue, man, uh, Bill half falls from the bed, choking on the bullet lodged in the back of his throat. He tries to shoot, uh, R- Ramirez tries to shoot Bill again, but the 22 jams cursing, he returns to the hall, clears the, clears the gun, leaves the shell on the floor, goes back in to finish Bill. The bullet he had taken, uh, tumbling after it entered, had caused severe damage to Bill's tongue, voice box and brain. He couldn't pick up the Walther to pull the trigger. He tries to beg for his life, but could not articulate the words. Blood is gushing from his mouth. I guess Richard feels like he doesn't need to shoot him again. Uh, maybe wants to just watch him suffer. Lillian has awakened at the report of the 22. She's heard Bill moaning, and uh, but you know she, she's unable to, to get to him, unable to move. She can only lie there in fucking terror. Bill's pleas uh, for mercy fall on deaf ears, and then uh, R- Ramirez uses his glove fist to then beat Bill unconscious and then kicks him viciously once he's down on the ground. He takes Bill's Walter and hurries to Lillian's bedroom, wakes, uh, walks up to her bed, slaps her, and warns her not to scream. Shut up or I'll kill you, bitch, is what he said. Uh, even if she'd wanted to scream, she couldn't since the stroke, verbal art- articulation had been difficult for her. He secures her hands with thumb cuffs, proceeds to ransack the house, taking whatever jewelry and valuables he could find, throwing things all over the place. The jewelry he stole included Bill Doy's Omega Constellation watch, his Masonic ring, Jade ring, Lillian Doy's father's pocket watch, both of their wedding bands. Bill comes to, moaning in pain, his streams of blood running from his nose and mouth. Immediately, the killer running back to him, knocks him unconscious again, beats him unconscious a second time. Excited by the shooting and the beating, Ramirez returns to Lillian's room, Lillian's, excuse me, room, and rapes her, all while demanding she not look at him. Uh, finished, he actually kisses her, uh, puts what he was taking into two pillowcases, disables one of the two phones in the house, and then, you know, uh, without removing the thumb cuffs from Lillian's hands, uh, Billy, Bill has somehow regained consciousness. He calls 911 a second time and repeatedly gurgles, help me, crying. Lillian struggles to get up, forces the cuff off her right hand, leaving her thumb badly bleeding. 
And then uh, the police, the police have been called now. For the first time, uh, Richard takes off. He's taken off. Uh, Lillian tells officers about a tall man in black with a gun and bad teeth. Officer Reynolds manages to get the cuffs off her th- other thumb. They put her in a squad car, drive her to Monterey Park Hospital. Uh, you know, and uh, Bill Doy, he also reaches the hospital at 5.13 a.m., is immediately taken into the emergency room, but he has died. And he is unable to be resuscitated. It's pronounced dead at 5.29 a.m. I mean, this whole bad teeth description uh, would keep coming up with Ramirez because in addition to coke and rape and theft and murder, uh, another one of his vices was candy. Uh, dude loved candy. Ate it all the time, I guess. So much so that his mouth uh, by the age of 25 was already just full of so many cavities. He was just like, he was like a giant evil kid left to his own horrible devices. He just did everything you're not supposed to do. Constant crime. Uh, he was deviant even when it came to nutrition. What, what am I supposed to eat? Real food? That will make me feel good? No, thanks. Satan says I can have all the candy I want. Satan says he told me that I can have Twix for breakfast, Kit Kats for lunch, and a box of Hostess cupcakes for dinner, and some Sixlets for dessert after my cupcakes. That's what Satan said. Uh, two weeks later, on the night of May 29th, 1985, this sick, candy-eating fuck of a human uh, drove a stolen Mercedes-Benz to Monrovia, 25 miles north of downtown L.A., and stopped at the house of Mabel Ma Bell, she's 83, and her sister Florence Nettie Lang, 81. Uh, he just, ah, uh, man, he's just, there's, there's nobody who's off limits to him. He, and, and he does something arguably more horrific and disturbing than what he's already done. Mabel Bell, or Ma Bell as she was known, was a strong, independent senior citizen who still drove around Monrovia, enjoyed bridge games three times a week. She liked the seclusion of her house. Crime wasn't something she worried about. She didn't even leave her uh, door locked. She moved to California from Oklahoma 35 years earlier where folks didn't leave their, you know, didn't lock their doors. Uh, she contributed uh, to a fund every year to keep the Statue of Liberty in good shape. She loved God, her country, her, her kids, her 12 grandkids. She was a good lady. She's a nice lady. She had taken in her invalid sister, Nettie, two years earlier rather than let her sister be institutionalized. Two sisters slept in different bedrooms. Ma Bell's was white with ruffled Victorian curtains covering its windows. Her bed had four dark wooden posts. And at 11.40 p.m. on May 29th, both sisters were sleeping soundly with the doors unlocked. And then just before midnight, the devil drives by. Ramirez, uh, he loved that Ma's house was a half a mile from any other home. So he parks along the street, you know, gets out, careful not to slam his door, quietly walks up to her front porch, you know, w- walks right through the front door, finds it, finds it unlocked. As usual, he wore gloves, didn't worry about fingerprints. When he, when he grabbed the doorknob, turned and pushed. Door opens, he slowly gets in, the hunched all low, coiled, you know, aggression, utter creepiness. He lets his eyes get used to the dark, takes out a flashlight, finds his way around to the bedrooms. He could readily see that the occupants of the house were not too well off, uh, that there was not much of monetary value, and he starts getting angry, starts getting pissed at them for not having enough good stuff for him to steal. Uh, he quickly finds Nettie Lang, and realizing she was an elderly invalid, he moves on to search the rest of the house, see if there's someone who's more of a threat. He then makes it to Ma Bell's room, sees her asleep in bed, realizes she also isn't much of a threat, and he searches the rest of the house, and then he really realizes he'd come to the wrong place. There were, there were no young women, there was nothing much to, to steal, and, and he becomes even more enraged because he is a 100,000% psychopath. Uh, he decides to take out his rage on the elderly women. He goes to the kitchen, looks for a knife, can't find one. He does find a fucking hammer. Yep, it's going to get real bad. Finds a red wood-handled hammer. And uh, he returns to Nettie Lang's bedroom and uh, walks up to her frail sleeping form, and without hesitation to, to wake her up, he smashes her in the head repeatedly. Then he uses a piece of electrical cord from a clock near the bed to bind her hands behind her back. Uh, not really sure that's necessary after the hammer smashes. Nettie's alarm clock drops to the floor, stops at 12.06 a.m. So police uh, knew when the attack occurred. 
calling to Satan to watch what he was about to do. He raises the hammer. At, now he goes into Ma Bell's room, raises the hammer again, and then strikes her in the head. She wakes up screaming in a panic, thinking she's having a nightmare. I'm um, sure. Again, he's again cartoonishly evil, calling on Satan to watch him bash old women in the heads with hammers. Uh, he screams, shut up or I'll kill you. Where's the money? Where's the jewelry? Uh, she says, I have no money. Get out of my house. Who are you? And she managed to say that, even though she'd been smashed in the head. And then he smashed her in the head again. And he sends some of her brain matter uh, onto the wall. But but doesn't kill her. Oh, Jesus Christ. He, put, he puts on the lights, finds duct tape, uses it to bind her ankles. He rips the, the rest of the cord from Ma Bell's bedside clock. Uh, four by five inch white face General Electric frayed uh, the bro- broken ends of the cord, plugs it back in, uses the exposed wires to shock her. He's shocking. He's still alive, semi-conscious Ma, Ma Bell. Then he takes whatever his value can find and uh, a cassette player, including the cassette players, excuse me, that Ma Bell had just gotten from her grandson. And then he's all sexually charged. And he returns to the somehow still alive Nettie Lang, rips her nightgown off and rapes her. Uh, and he knows Satan is going to be pleased with his work. And then his time, he reasons to let the whole world know that he has, uh, you know, been walking with Satan. And he uses Ma Bell's red lipstick to draw a pentagram on the back of her left thigh and on the, on the white wall over her head. And then he draws a pentagram on Nettie Lang's bedroom wall. Then he uh, goes to the kitchen, you know, eats a banana, uh, drinks a can of Mountain Dew, has, has a can of Coke, takes a piss, and then he leaves, carrying a bloodstained pillowcase with his sister's, uh, with the sister's, excuse me, meager belongings in it, you know, like he's just some fucking deranged Santa Claus. <sighs> 26 hours later, doesn't even wait uh, two days to attack his next victim. He's still, he's attacking the next victim. 26 hours later, Ma Bell and Nettie Lang are still bound and alive, just as he left them. 78-year-old Carlos Valenzuela would do gardening uh, for, for the, uh, in the Monrovia area. He was doing it, and he had known Mabel Bell for 24 years. He'd taken care of her uh, yard and her pool, and he passed by the house in the morning of May 30th, rung the bell, knocked, doesn't get an answer, comes back the next day, same thing. Finally, when he comes back on June 1st, the third time, he enters the house, finds them, finds them still alive 58 hours after being attacked. Uh, both visible brain matter, uh, you know, you're able to see their head wounds. You're able to see their brains through their skulls. Jesus Christ. Both were comatose and neither would ever recover from their injuries. Of course not. Uh, but yeah, but, and then the night after that attack, the night of May 30th, he's, he's right back at it. He drives to Burbank, just a few miles north of downtown LA, but a whole other world. I worked in Burbank for two years and it's, you know, sleepy, kind of quaint. A little bit of California meets the Midwest. It's the home of NBC, tons of studios. Doesn't feel like Hollywood. Uh, you know, people, people do not expect, I guess, anywhere for a piece of shit like Richard Ramirez, but they expect it less in a place like Burbank. He stops at Goodwill uh, earlier in the day where he had bought boxes of books and filled the back seat with them. So if the police were chasing him and shot at him, the books would stop the bullets. This was some shit he'd just seen in a movie. He's completely out of his mind. 3.57 a.m., he parks on North Avon, walks over to a beige stucco house, average Burbank house with a big bay window, sneaks into the backyard. Approaches the quiet house, sneaks into the back door or up to the back door, finds it uh, locked, finds all the windows locked, but the doggy door is not locked. And he got into a couple homes this way. So, man, something to think about if you have a doggy door. He quietly reaches up from, from you know, the doggy door. He puts his arm through it and is able to unlock the, black, the back door and lets himself into the home. And, th- and this time he lets himself into the home of 42-year-old Carol Kyle. Finger tied in the trigger of his 22 uh, pistol. He finds her bedroom, finds her asleep. Uh, points a gun at her, flips on the lights, and screams her awake. Wake up, bitch. Don't scream or I'll kill you. Don't make a fucking sound. Puts the gun to her head and asks who else is in the house. Turns out her 11-year-old son. He walks Carol down the hall to her son's bedroom, makes Carol lie face down on the floor with the promise that he'll kill her if she gets up. He storms into her son's room, starts to scream her son awake as well. And then Carol bolts up anyway, throws herself between Ramirez and her son. 
And then he handcuffs them both together, puts them in a hall closet, ransacks the house looking for things that are valuable. When he can't find anything, he comes back, threatens both their lives. Carol convinces him to follow her into the bedroom away from her son where she has a jewelry box. Once in the room, she gives him a diamond ring, the diamond ring her uh, dead husband had given to her. He died six years earlier in a plane crash. And then Ramirez rapes her orally, vaginally, and anally. And then he thanks her. Yeah, after all the raping, like a lot of raping, uh, says she wasn't bad for her age. And then he lets her put her clothes back on, asks her for directions to the freeway like they'd just been on a date. Uh, then he handcuffs her and her sand to the bed, and then he leaves. What the fuck? Uh, but just because he let Carol live doesn't mean he, he wasn't done killing. Less than a month later, on June 27th, he strikes again, this time in Arcadia, 18 miles east of Burbank, a little more than 20 miles northeast of downtown L.A., uh, breaks into the apartment of 28-year-old school teacher Patty Elaine Higgins, who he brutally beat, sodomized, and nearly decapitated. And then less than a week after that, on July 2nd, he's back in Arcadia, this time sneaking into the home of 75-year-old widow Mary Louise Cannon, a widow who lived alone, a woman who'd beat cancer twice. She was about to take a trip with other seniors to Australia. She'd been in a minor accident the day before it was supposed to be healing up for her trip. And then while she slept, Richard Ramirez took a heavy vase lamp from her bedroom and bashed her head, uh, her head with it. She wakes up screaming. He beats her unconscious. And then he gets a 10-inch knife from the kitchen, slashed her throat, thinking about how proud Satan must be of him. And then he grabs anything he thinks he can fence, anything he can sell, and takes off back downtown to the Cecil Hotel. The LAPD now knew for sure that they had like a fucking grade A or whatever you want to say, like, like the most dangerous form of serial killer, like a, a highly active serial killer on their hands. They're putting their best detectives on the case. But, but this case felt almost impossible to solve because he didn't have a victim type. His, his MO was just random mayhem. You know, he was a, they knew he was a Hispanic guy, but he was a Hispanic guy in a city full of Hispanic guys. Uh, the media at this point still calling him the Valley Intruder. Uh, you know, and then it shifts quickly into calling him the Night Stalker. I, I guess that was catchier. Despite law enforcement um, dedicating more and more manpower seemingly every day to finding this guy, he doesn't leave the area yet. He doesn't stop killing. Three days after Mary Louise Cannon's murder on July 5th, he breaks into a home in Sierra Madre, another town in the valley, just north of Pasadena, 26 miles from downtown L.A. He bludgeons 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. He's just, again, all over the map, you know, elderly woman, teen, doesn't, he doesn't fucking care. After, so, sometimes he, he, he rapes and kills. Sometimes he rapes and leaves. It's just ugh. After searching in vain for a knife in the kitchen, he attempts to strangle her with a telephone cord, and then he's startled to see sparks emanate from the cord, and, 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 and the victim start to breathe again. I guess she'd stop breathing for a moment, and then he flees the house thinking that Jesus Christ uh, had intervened and saved her. So he, th- he thinks he's in this weird religious battle now in, in his coke-addled, sociopath, psychopath mind. He's so crazy. Uh, she survives a savage beating. But, but it requires 478 stitches to close the lacerations to her scalp. Unbelievable that she lived through that. She had to have massive facial reconstructive surgery. And then a little interesting trivia, Whitney uh, uh, would later help put Ramirez in prison with her powerful eyewitness testimony in court. And she would also marry Mike Salerno, son of one of the uh, main L.A. detectives who was working the Night Soccer Ramirez case. Just two days later, on July 7th, I mean, he's just constant, constant just butchery. Uh, on July 7th, Ramirez burglarizes the home of Joyce Louis, uh, Lucille Nelson. She's 61 in Monterey Park. Finds her uh, asleep on her living room couch. He beats her to death using his fists. Oh, my God. And, then, and, then, and also, when she's on the ground, stomps her. Uh, he stomps her so savagely, a, a shoe print from his Avia sneaker was left just Im- imprinted on her face. 
when detectives showed up. He, he's just stomped her fucking face into oblivion. He, he doesn't seem like a human being. He doesn't. He, he just, he's like some vicious, sick animal, some rabid animal just pretending to be a human, like an alien. Ugh. Hours later at 3 a.m., the morning of July 8th, just hours later, he breaks into the home of a 63-year-old psychiatric nurse named Sophie Dickman, lets himself in by unlocking the back door, by reaching up to that doggy door once again, steals her jewelry, beats her, attempts to sodomize her, um, doesn't work out, so he gives up. Then he makes her swear on Satan. That was something he would say all the time. I want you to swear on Satan that she would never tell anyone he was there, and then he leaves. Again, the, the, so random, no MO. Uh, less than two weeks later, on July 20th, he decides to work a machete into the mix. A fucking machete. Uh, Ramirez purchases a machete before driving a stolen Toyota to Glendale, just six miles north of L.A., just nine miles from downtown L.A. Right? He's, he, he chooses the home of Layla Needing, 66, her husband, Max, 68. Before entering the home, he actually kneels down and prays to Satan, saying, by all that is evil, I, your humble servant, invoke Satan to be here and accept this offering. <sighs> he bursts into the sleeping couple's bedroom, Flips on the light, screams, rise and shine, motherfuckers, then buries his machete into Max's neck. The blade sticks, doesn't kill Max, uh, but he has a hard time getting it back out, so he takes out his twenty-two pistol, shoots him in the head, killing him instantly, and then he shoots Leela three times in the face, killing her. And then he takes everything he can feel like, you know, that he feels like he can steal uh, or sell uh, back to his fence, you know, heads back town to make some money. Uh, and this is something else that freaks me out about Ramirez, you know, how he just turned savage murder into a business. Right? I mean, it wasn't just about pleasing Satan. It was also like how he paid his bills. He killed for sexual satisfaction, killed for some sort of satanic fulfillment, and, uh, and then also to make some scratch so he could stay at the Cecil, get hookers, and do blow. Hours after killing the Needings in Glendale and selling their stuff, he heads to Sun Valley uh, nearby. Uh, Sun Valley is a sleepy suburb about 18 miles north of downtown, just a few miles north of Burbank. And uh, approximately 4.15 a.m., he breaks into the home of the uh, Kovanas family. And, and again, the frequency. I mean, he's just fucking butchered people with a machete. He zips back downtown in his stolen car, sells his stuff, and then he's like, oh man, we're, we're not done yet. Night's just getting started. Um, he, he was just a terror. Man, so he, so he breaks into the home of this family that immigrated from Thailand a, a decade earlier. He, he murders uh, Chenarong uh, by shooting, this is the father of the family, by shooting him in the head with a 25 caliber handgun. Kills him instantly. Uh, that the dad had never even, you know, never even realized that someone had broken in one second. He's asleep. Next second, he's dead. He then r repeatedly, uh, rapes the wife, some kid Kavanath, uh, beating her and sodomizing her, uh, over and over in the bed where her dead body's husband is still lying. He, he binds the couple's terrified eight-year-old son before dragging, uh, the wife around the house to reveal the location of valuable items, which he steals during his assault. He constantly demands that she swear to Satan that she's not hiding more money, uh, from him. Uh, and then he rapes her again after getting all the valuables and takes off. And after he leaves, uh, she takes her son and flees to a neighbor's house who calls the police. And she would describe Richard as being brown skinned with bad teeth, 30 to 35. He's actually much younger. He's still he's 25, 150 pounds, six foot one or so. The old candy tooth demon boy has struck again. Uh, a little over two weeks later, Ramirez comes across the luckiest would be, should be victims of a serial killer I've ever read about. Chris and Virginia Peterson. This shit is unbelievable. The couple had been sleeping in the master bedroom of their single-story home when the gunman pushed a, pist a pistol into Virginia Peterson's face. She sits up in bed screaming. He fires. She's struck by one shot in the face, falls back. She's, she moves to shield her husband, but the gunman fires again. Ramirez shoots him in the neck, dazed and not believing uh, either they've been shot. Uh, Virginia asks her husband, did he hit us with a stun gun? 
He answers, no, it's a starter gun. This is a sick joke. And then they realize he's still in the room watching them. So, so the husband, uh, after just getting shot, you know, he, he uh, got some serious fight or flight going on. He charges Ramirez, dodging two more shots. And Richard flees through the same door he entered and sneaks off into the night. And then the couple rush there uh, to, to find their four-year-old daughter who's been sleeping in another room. She's unharmed. They call the police, and then they pile into their camper and then drive themselves to a hospital. After oh, Each of them just get, you know, he, he gets shot in the neck, she gets shot in the face. What they remember most about the attack was the way that, the, uh, that Ramirez lingered. He could have just finished, finished us off just then, uh, said the, uh, the husband, 38, but he just watched us. They say he likes to watch them suffer. The Peterson spent one night in a hospital. Uh, Chris, uh, you know, again, been shot in the neck, Virginia shot in the head. And although it was a small caliber gun, authorities say it was amazing they survived a point-blank attack like that. Uh, and, and, you know, that's how they found out they were superheroes. And that's uh, what the uh, animated movie The Incredibles is based on. It's based on their story. Uh, no, it's not. But that, is inc- but that is incredible. So unlucky to be un- attacked. So lucky to survive shots at point-blank range like that. Other uh, cases investigated by the Night Stalker Task Force. Uh, and there is a, definitely a, a Night Stalker Task Force going on now. He is being called the Night Stalker. You know, they describe what, what he looks like. Just two days later, though, uh, he, he's right back at it again. Repeats a lot of the details of the uh, Sun Valley Kovanis family attack. On August 8th, 1985, he drives a stolen car to Diamond Bar, 25, 27 miles east of downtown L.A., chooses the home of Sakina Abawath, 27, her husband, uh, Elias Abawath, 31. And, and, and what's really insane to me is that with the exception of the first random murder of the nine-year-old, all of this has happened in 1985. Right. Uh, the frequency makes it extra disturbing. He just keeps killing faster and faster. Also, I'm not sure if this has anything to do with these killings, but No Looking Back had just been released on July 30th. Right. The second solo album from Michael Motherfucker McDonald, Triple M. The hit single No Looking Back had just been released early that summer. I can't hold on. I can't return. Time to let go, start to live and learn. I can't hold on, I can't return. Rivers will run, bridges will burn. How much does that song have to do with Night Stalker murders? We'll never know. We do know it has 100% to do with you just getting fucking Michael McDonalded right now. Sorry, I know, we, I, I, know I already sang shittily early this episode, but this shit is so heavy. I needed a break. I needed some Yacht Rock to take my mind off of constant, horrific murder. All right. Enough of that lighthearted silliness. Back to gloom and despair. Uh, that was a tough song to sing, by the way. That's, uh, that's actually, if you listen to that one, that song, if you do like Michael, No Looking Back, uh, it actually is one of my favorite Michael McDonald songs, but not as easy to sing as some of his other ones. It's my only complaint. So if, you know, if you're hitting the karaoke bar, that's, uh, that's, that's like a level three McDonald's song to try and pull off. Okay, so when he back, back to this fucking piece of shit, we're back on August 8th, 1985. He's in Diamond Bar. He snuck into this young couple, Sakina and Elias Abawath's home, and uh, he enters the house around 2.30 a.m. via uh, this unlocked rear sliding glass door, goes into the master bedroom, instantly kills the sleeping husband, shoots him in the head. It's time for a 25 caliber handgun, handcuffs and beats Sakina while forcing her to reveal the locations of the family's jewelry, uh, making her swear to Satan, a lot of swearing to Satan going on. After she reveals the location of a bunch of jewelry, he then brutally rapes and sodomizes her, repeatedly demands that she swear on Satan, that, she, that she's not going to scream during his assaults. 
And when the couple's three-year-old son enters the bedroom, oh my God, Ramirez ties the kid up and then continues just to rape the mom, just in front of the kid. Like he's, there's, again, no limits to the depravity this guy will, will commit. Uh, and then he leaves, doesn't kill her, leaves, uh, you know, um, she, 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 she get, unties her son. She runs to the neighbors for help. And uh, my God, it, it, and again, he's just, he's so evil. You wonder if he just let some of these people live so they could just suffer more with their memories. Like, you know, because he clearly wasn't a nice guy. Uh, the local news in L.A. is definitely now all about the Night Stalker. Night Stalker Task Force is combing the streets. He's left numerous eyewitnesses alive now. There's a reward out for him, for over $30,000. And uh, he's getting getting worried about it now because he has a lot of dirtbag kind of, uh, you know, drug and, and theft contacts who, who would happily sell him out. It's not like he, he doesn't have any friends. Uh, he heads north to San Francisco. Within days of arrival, he's broken into some homes, stolen some jewelry, beaten the shit out of a 70-year-old Chinese woman in a Chinatown fucking apartment building lobby just for the fuck of it. Just, you know, followed her in, beat the shit out of her and left. Uh, Ten days after the Diamond Bar Abawath family attack on August 18th, 1985, he enters the home of Peter and Barbara Pan in the Lakeside District of San Francisco. Peter, 66, worked as an accountant for the San Francisco General Hospital for the past 16 years. Wife is a bank teller. And, and, uh, and he shoots Peter in his sleep. Gunshot to the temple again. This is like his, his favorite thing to do now. Barbara, ages, uh, age 62, again, uh, beaten and sexually violated before being shot in her head and left for dead. At the crime scene, Ramirez uses lipstick to scrawl a pentagram in the phrase, Jack the Knife under the bedroom wall. Then he goes to the Tenderloin District, picks up a prostitute, pays her 10 bucks to have sex with her feet. Seriously. Probably ate a bunch of candy after that and then just passes out. When it's discovered that the ballistic and shoe print evidence from the Night Stalker crime scenes matches up to the Pan crime scene, the then mayor of San Francisco divulged information in a televised press conference, and this leak infuriates the detectives because now they know that the, the killer's following the media co- coverage and, and it's going to give him you know, the opportunity to sneak away, to destroy f- some forensic evidence. Ramirez had been watching the press, and he drops his size 11.5 Avia sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night. And then he hangs out for a few more days and heads back to, uh, to L.A. Week later, August 24th, Ramirez breaks into the house of Bill Carnes, 30 years old, his fiance Inez Erickson, 29, through a back door. Uh, Ramirez, uh, he enters the bedroom of the sleeping couple, awakens Carnes when he cocks his 25 caliber handgun. Uh, he shoots Carnes three times in the head. Then he turns his attention to his wife. Ramirez told the terrified woman that he was the night stalker, forces her to swear that she loves Satan, beats her with his fists, uh, bounds her with neckties. After stealing what he can find, he drags her to another room to rape and sodomize her, demands cash, more jewelry, makes her swear on Satan some more. Uh, that there's no more jewelry before leaving the home. He tells, uh, the wife, tell them the night soccer was here. She unties herself, goes to a neighbor's house, uh, and to get help for her severely injured fiance. Surgeons are actually able to remove two of the bullets from his head. And incredibly, he survives his injuries. Uh, Erickson was able to give a detailed description of the assailant to investigators. The police were able to obtain a cast of Ramirez's footprint. The stolen car is found August 28th, uh, near the Wilshire, Wilshire center in LA. And uh, police are able to obtain a single f- fingerprint from the rear view mirror, despite Ramirez's careful efforts to wipe the car clean of his prints. The print was positively identified as belonging to Richard Munoz Ramirez. They had that database going now. He's described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. Law enforcement officials decide to release uh, to the media a mugshot of Ramirez from December 12, 1984, uh, from, his, from his car theft arrest. arrest. And, and the Night Stalker finally has a face. There's a police conference, and it's announced, we know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. 
There will be no place you can hide. Six days later, August 30th, 1985, Ramirez tries to take a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother, unaware that he's become the lead story in virtually every major newspaper and television program across the state of California. After failing, oh no, I'm sorry, he does take a bus to Tucson. Uh, that's right. That's right. This this time he'd actually made it out. And then he, he doesn't realize how, how much heat is on him. And he takes a bus back to L.A. on August 31st. Then he walks past officers who are, who are staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching this killer. Uh, after noticing, just as he's leaving the bus terminal, a group of elderly Mexican women fearfully identifying him, calling him the El Matador. Uh, the killer, uh, Ramirez, sees his face on the covers uh, on the newspaper rack. And he, and he flees, the, flees in a panic. After running across the Santa Fe uh, freeway, he attempts to carjack a woman. He's chased away by bystanders who pursue him. An angry mob now chasing this guy, just like angry mobs used to chase fucking people they thought were monsters hundreds of years ago. After hopping over several fences, attempting two more carjackings, the mob catches up with him. Someone in the mob has a metal bar, bashes him in the head. The mob continues to beat him until police show up. A unit from uh, LAPD arrives on the scenes, including Officer Jim Kaiser, who said that he had been chasing reports the Night Stalker in this neighborhood. Officer Andy Ramirez remembers, but by the time the cops uh, showed up and arrested Ramirez, more and more people were realizing it was a night stalker, uh, not just a carjacker. The tone of the crowd changed, he said. You could see the anger. They were getting closer and closer to where Richard Ramirez had been handcuffed and placed in the car. I thought if I lose control of this crowd, they're going to take him from this car. You know, they're going to kill him. Officer Kaiser then hears someone in the crowd shout, get him, shoot him. Kaiser takes Richard Ramirez out of Andy Ramirez's car. And uh, the mob had surrounded that car at this point transports him to, to his police vehicle and takes him to the Hollenbeck police station. Uh, when Kaiser stopped at the Hollenbeck station, he opens the patrol car door. Ramirez throws up in the parking lot. Uh, it was green, like the exorcist, Kaiser would say, referencing the 1973 movie. Uh, this guy is really evil. Puke was probably uh, probably just a mixture of Mountain Dew and Jolly Ranchers, you know? Whatever whatever candy was the grossest, the most evil. That's probably what was his favorite, probably what he had in his stomach. Kaiser tightens Ramirez's handcuffs over and over again. He goes, I, I didn't uh, know what he was capable of. I looked straight in th into the eyes of absolute evil. He had cold, black eyes. He was the ultimate manifestation of absolute evil. Uh, Ramirez asked the detective for a favor, saying, put a bullet in my head. Let's end it. Gil uh, uh, Carrillo, the lead sher uh, sheriff's homicide detective who had, been handing, uh, uh, who had been on the Night Stalker's trail for months, walks into the LAPD building just before 10 a.m. He's joined by his partner, Frank Salerno. It was a party-like atmosphere. The two detectives stopped the party immediately. Then Ramirez, who'd been reading about himself in the newspapers, knew the names of both detectives without being introduced. Carrillo sat across from Ramirez in a second-floor interview room. Uncuff him, he said. Carrillo called uh, him Rich. Rich was calm, called himself the Night Stalker, and he asked Carrillo a question. Why do you think I did what I did? Carrillo thought for a second, Rich, if I had that answer, I would be a doctor making a lot of money. And he would later say he was the most vicious and vile person I had ever come into contact with. And this is an LAPD veteran homicide detective. During the interview, Carrillo noticed Ramirez was tracing circles and lines on the table with his finger. And he figured out that he was drawing pentagrams. Shortly after this, uh, Ramirez would be charged with 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, 14 burglaries. And that finally takes us out of the super scary stuff. All right, we're out of the murder, rape, and overall crime spree of Richard Ramirez. And we're done with me singing. So a couple good things have happened. But not out of the timeline. His story still has some extremely interesting moments. He put on quite a show at his trial. 
Uh, jury selection for the case didn't didn't begin until three years later because of a lot of legal mumbo jumbo. Started on July twenty second, nineteen eighty eight. At his first court appearance, Ramirez raised a hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled, "Hail Satan!" Fucking ridiculous. Although, if I am ever put on trial for anything, I hope I remember to yell, "Hail Nimrod!" Because that would be a great inside joke for you guys. Uh, August third, nineteen eighty eight. The Los Angeles Times reported that some jail employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with the gun. Uh, which Ramirez, I guess, intended to have smuggled into the courtroom. Consequently, a metal detector is installed outside the courtroom, and intensive searches are being conducted on people entering the courtroom now. August 14th, the trial is interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, doesn't arrive at the courtroom. Later that day, she's found shot to death in her apartment. The jury is terrified. They, they couldn't help but wonder if Ramirez had something to do with this, if he had directed this event from inside his prison cell, and, and if he could reach other jury members. Turns out Ramirez was not responsible for Singletary's death. Uh, she'd been shot and killed by her boyfriend, who later committed suicide with the same weapon. However, the alternate juror who replaced Singletary w- was so frightened to be in the trial that she, she was uh, 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 you know, fearful to return to her home. Yeah, I bet she was. Can you imagine getting stuck on a trial like that? I would, I would say whatever it took to get myself out of that shit. Uh, September 20th, 1989, Ramirez was convicted of all charges. 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, 14 burglaries. During the penalty phase of the trial on November 7th, 89, he's sentenced to die in California's gas chamber. He states to reporters after the, after the death sentence he's given, he says, big deal. Death was always, uh, death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. What the fuck? During his trial, he, he'd amassed a sizable group of followers. Some were fellow devil worshipers who idolized him. Some were groupies who wanted to have his baby. Yeah, women were fighting, like literally fighting over Richard Ramirez outside of, uh, outside of court. I think I've said this in a previous podcast, but how bad does that suck for the person who's lived their life the right way and who can't get a date, right? This guy's the biggest piece of shit of all time, one of them. This rotten-toothed, candy-eating psychopath has women fighting over him. A- attractive women, actually. Uh, one of these women was Doreen Leoy, who wrote him nearly 75 letters during his incarceration, starting shortly after his arrest in 1985. How, how insulting to the victims of these crimes. What a deranged piece of shit she is. In 1988, he proposed to her. She accepts. In October 3rd, 1996, uh, they're married uh, in California's uh, San Quentin State Prison. <laughs> For years before Ramirez's death, Leoy stated that she'd commit suicide when Ramirez was executed. Well, t- too bad. Too bad she. Uh, ah, too bad that never happened. Uh, Ramirez was never executed. He was eventually. Uh, he eventually died on death row shortly before California abolished it on June 7th, 2013, of complications secondary to B cell lymphoma at Marin General Hospital in Greenbrae, California. He'd also been suffering from complications brought on by chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. And I hope his death was painful. Uh, and that takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Wow, so, so what a monster, huh? Evil until the very end. Never expressed any remorse for all the horrible, horrible, horrible things he did. Believed in the devil right up until the end. Uh, randomly, actor Todd Bridges. Uh, remember that dude? He was on different strokes when he was a kid. And then he had some like rough patches with drugs and some crime. Well, he ended up being incarcerated briefly in the same prison as Ramirez. And, and he remembers uh, in an interview later, he remembered Ramirez taunting him. He said that Ramirez would come by his cell and shake the door really hard. He always tried to freak me out. He would say, I'm going to come in and get you. Uh, Bridges said the shit he did and the stuff he said in court wasn't for show. He was that guy, evil to the core until the very end. And, and still, like I said earlier, he had groupies. 
you know, I, I get the bad boy fascination a lot of women go through on some level, you know. Uh, you know, I, I get, you know, I've, I've thought that bad girls are hot, you know. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, but Ramirez, way too bad. Like getting tatted up, smoking and drinking too much, living a reckless life, having that kind of, you know, uh, charismatic, don't give a fuck attitude. That's one thing, you know. It's, but being, being a pure, sadistic, homicidal, rapist, and murder, uh, that's, I guess it's a little redundant, homicidal murder. Kind of goes that, but yeah, but just being that evil is an entirely other thing. Let, let's explore this dark fascination some of these women have uh, on today's idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. internet. The best video I could find dealing with uh, murderer uh, groupies, I guess, that didn't have the comments disabled because most of them did, was ten serial killers with obsessive groupies published by Planet Dolan in 2016. Ramirez being one of the ten. And before we get to the dumb comments, uh, a lot of funny ones. Uh, user, the anime avatar is ironic, posts all these serial killers and their groupies, and I can't still get a text back. And then user Nade Duck posts, I guess there's a, a complete goddamn moron out there for everyone, to which user Ulysses replies, 22 years, and I'm still looking for my moron. I love that. Uh, user Metal Neck has the best one, I think, point, uh, posting, so remember, little Timmy, if you want Sally from down the street to like you, murder her friends. <laughs> Jeez. And then the dumb starts. Uh, user Alice Beniston posts, I'll admit Richard Ramirez is good looking. And user I broke apart to play this game goes full misguided teen goth dumb shit and posts, he's good looking and Satanism is awesome. Uh, no, he's not. Uh, it's not. And you should be sterilized. You should be sterilized. With that attitude, get ready to have a terrible life. Get ready to have some kids with some loser who's going to leave you and abandon his responsibilities to work on a shitty fucking band or whatever. You know, wonder how awesome you'll think uh, worshiping the devil and bad boys are then, huh? Uh, and then Alice, the original poster, ends up telling another one of the creeps in the comment section to find her on Facebook and hit her up. Oh, jeez. Do you want to be a future victim? The, the comment section of a serial killer video? That's, that's where you're going to find your hookups? You know? Jesus. Then user Kimmy Freak 200 uh, shows how fucking dumb she is, commenting, he was scary, uh, though, and had hep C. Also had rotting teeth when he was captured. That's why they were messed up. He was a homeless drug addict. I like his, I liked his fuck the world attitude and his swagger and charisma, but his crimes were terrifying to me. Big turnoff, but you know what? Hey, that's just me. <laughs> Big turnoff, but that's just me. I, I love how she, you know, would consider dating someone like that, but, but the homeless thing, the hep C, the fucked up teeth were turnoffs. You know, I mean, his crimes were terrifying, but she liked his charisma and attitude. Love the hey, that's just me too. You know, I don't want to offend anybody. Look, if you guys want to fuck a serial killer, I mean, who am I to judge? You, you should judge shit like that, you moron. I, I hate the notion that you can't judge anyone. No, no, no. Yes, you can. And, and should heavily. Like if you think Ramirez was a cool, good guy, fuck you. You are so dumb. I, I hope you can never have kids. I hope your dick doesn't work or that your uterus is as barren as the space between your ears. I hope you're never, never able to get a job, even working around kids. I hope you don't live anywhere near kids. I hope you don't, I hope you don't see a kid. I hope you go blind so you can't see kids. I don't, I don't want you influencing the future of society in any meaningful way whatsoever, you pathetic, wretched, misguided, complete fucking idiot of the internet. Idiots of the internet. So uh, Ramirez, glad he's dead. Too bad he lived as long as he did. Uh, very disturbing that some people think he's cool. Uh, what a preposterous monster. And, and while we'll never get to know exactly what makes these people tick, what turns them into murderers, you know, a lot of kids have abusive parents, a lot of kids are molested, a lot have some kind of mental disorder, leaves them devoid of empathy, 
and the overwhelming majority don't grow up to become people anywhere close to what Richard Ramirez became. Uh, but I do feel like old cousin Mike, old Miguel, ha- had a lot to do with the formation of the Night Stalker. You were maybe at your most impressional around, you know, 12 and 13 years old. And, and this is the dude, you know, that he spent time with, you know, transitioning from a boy to a young man. This, this dude is who he's with when he's first dabbling with drugs, when he's first, you know, having like sexual thoughts, establishing his sexual identity. And this, and this guy's telling him that rape is cool, showing him pictures of rape, showing him pictures of murder, of necrophilia. You know, uh, and then a year or so later shows him actual murder, murder someone in front of him, you know, and it's because it's a family member. He doesn't feel like he can talk about any of the crazy thoughts he's having. Oh my God, man. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Showing somebody all that doesn't mean, you know, like, again, they will become a sadistic nightmare, but I feel like it greatly increases the odds that they will. So, uh, yeah, again, watch who you let your kids hang around, man. Now let's take another look back at all of this with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, on September 20th, 1989, Richard, the Night Stalker Ramirez, was convicted on 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries, and he was sentenced to death row, and years later, he would be tied to another murder, his 14th with DNA evidence. Number two, Richard committed nearly all of his violent crimes in one year, 1985. Michael McDonald released his second solo album, Looking Back, that same year. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. Coincidence? For sure. But fun for me to have an excuse to throw Triple M into another episode of The Suck. Number three, cokehead Richard Ramirez believed his crimes were pleasing the devil. And in addition to torturing, raping, beating, robbing, and killing his victims, he also made them swear to Satan repeatedly during the crimes. And even prayed for satanic guidance during some of the crimes. Man, it's like Rick James said on that old Chappelle show sketch. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Uh, number four, an angry mob caught Ramirez before the police did. And if the police hadn't shown up when they did, might've beaten him to death. Too bad they didn't. Would have given this story a better ending, given the families of his victims, something to feel good about. And number five, new info during his trial, Ramirez tried to kill the prosecuting attorney. Uh, right. We said that in the middle of the trial, law enforcement, uh, tasked with keeping the courtroom safe, found, found out about the plot. Ramirez had planned to get a gun at the courtroom. Well, also after the plot is discovered, uh, he tries to escape prison, tries to get out twice. So he could get back out there and start killing again. The first of Ramirez's escape plans was prevented in the fall of 93 when Ramirez was being brought back to prison and had to pass through a metal detector. The machine beeped as Ramirez walked through and law enforcement found a key inserted into his rectum that would open his handcuffs. The second escape plan never got out of the planning stages since guards at the prison found out about a a potential plot after reading a letter from an obsessed Night Stalker fan who was trying to help him escape. Probably a groupie. Hope she spent some serious time in prison for being that dumb as well. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Richard Ramirez has been sucked. And I need some mouthwash. Need to get the taste out of my mouth uh, from that fucking monster. Gross. Okay, something that's not gross. More of the danger brain. Black cult of the curious 251% elderly moleskin shirts back in the store. Should be available by purchase or for purchase by tomorrow. Other designs we've run low on are uh, in the progress of reorder and some new Danger Brain stickers should be in the store in just a few days, including some new vinyl car decals. They look amazing. And uh, the Danger Brain guys, by the way, uh, when they were kids, they lived in the in the valley out in L.A. And they remember, I was talking to Alfonso just the other day, and he remembers all the news coverage and being terrified when he was a kid of Richard Ramirez back in 85. Uh, many of you have been downloading the free ringtones that are now in the Time Suck store. Uh, it's downloads for both Android and iPhone users. I love it. Show intro, outro, most of the segment intros are up. 
uh, as is the most popular download, this uh, this one from the Tupac and Biggie episode where they took my, oh, buy some my crack, uh, and they remixed that into a ringtone. So put it on the suck, or put the suck on your phone, excuse me. It's free. Uh, thanks to Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, Lindsey Cummins, Josh Krell, the entire Time Suck team for their help. Huge thanks to OG Bank, Bojangles research team members Rebecca and Sarah Lilly for giving me a turbo boost on my Ramirez research. And condolences again to Time Sucker Aaron. Uh, this Monday, we kick off April with the Space Lizard selected Stanford Prison Experiment as a topic. So excited. Uh, almost done uh, putting that episode uh, together research-wise. Current vote leader for the next Space Lizard be, uh, voted on topic is the Green River Killer. So we may have more murder coming uh, your way in mid-April. Uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment, by the way, took place in 1971, supervised by esteemed social psychologist uh, Philip Zimbardo. Young men were divided into the roles of prisoner and guard and put in a prison-like environment in the basement of the psychology department of Stanford University. The study was meant to last two weeks, but the brutality of the guards, the fake guards, the suffering of the fake prisoners, so intense, it was terminated much before that. Uh, Find out what incredible information we learned about the human condition, about human nature from that experiment, why it was conducted, why it can never be conducted again just uh, just a couple days this Monday. And now let's find out what you suckers have been up to with this week's uh, incredible Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Okay, I have never gotten so many emails about one episode like I did this past week regarding the American gun suck, and overwhelmingly they were respectful and intelligent. Never been more proud to be a member of Time Suck than I am right now. Uh, just amazing. Just an amazing group of people. Here are just a few. Uh, I'll share more on Monday. So many came in. So many great ones. First uh, is an update uh, from Ailey Irvine, who writes in with an awesome subject line of, my degree is in this, so listen up. Eileen says, hiya. Sorry for my slightly aggressive subject line, but I know you will be getting a lot of emails. Yep. Uh, about guns, and I wanted to stand out. I have a degree in criminal justice, and so I was super excited to hear about your gun episode. You did a good job. Really good job. Learned some new things, and it made me think. Now, that being said, there's a couple things I want to bring about uh, in just a few points. You kept saying you couldn't find the stats you wanted and even wondered if the data you, you did have or lack of it was political. It's not. Look into something called the Dickey Amendment. This is why there isn't a lot of up-to-date research on guns. The CDC funds a large majority of research in the USA, and by law, they basically can't research guns due to the Dickey Amendment. It's a really shitty deal because then we can't have a good scientifically-backed discussion about guns. And uh, I did not have time to research the Dickey Amendment, but I'm curious if, uh, if uh, you know, more of you know more about it. But I just, yeah, I am curious, like, why that was passed? Why don't we uh, know more? And, and then uh, Eileen says, something to think about with rape rates. You mentioned Australia specifically. Uh, rape rates are extremely difficult to interpret. Rape rates can often go up. Uh, uh, rape rates can and often do go up when people feel more comfortable reporting those rates. So as sexual liberation and sexual norms have relaxed in many countries, including Australia, more f- people feel comfortable reporting to the police. This leads to an uptick in rape rates. Okay, that's, that's an interesting thought as opposed to any kind of correlation with uh, you know, gun control. Also in recent years, the definition of rape has changed. For example, the FBI just updated their definition in 2012 to include male rape. Until then, many men that were raped weren't considered or weren't counted in the overall number. Instead, it was just considered assault. Obviously, this excludes child rape of any gender. Uh, another thing, Switzerland and Finland, etc., have free mental health care. There are problems with their systems, but no matter your income, you can get care. That makes a huge difference. On top of that, kids get evaluations at a young age in school. As far as mental health, so kids that have problems at a young age can be identified and get the help they need. 
And when the men join, uh, and when men join the man- mandatory military, they also undergo a psychological evaluation. That this will be something considered when buying a gun. Thanks for the show. I hope my points uh, help clear up some things. Hail Lucifina, Eileen. Yeah, thank you, Eileen. I mean, that that really was great. I mean, you really further illustrate how complicated this issue is, and how when you dig into the stats, it gets it gets even more complicated. There's so many factors to consider when you're trying to figure out what within a culture. Uh, is contributing to overall violence levels and what is contributing to the prevention of overall violence levels. Very hard to figure out what where the important statistically significant uh, correlations are. And the mental health thing, I think that is such a good point. I mean, what if we had way less stigma in this country about mental health? What if there was free mental health care for everybody? If we could make that a thing, what if there were screenings starting, you know, in childhood to just kind of like, you know, uh, look for people who may have, you know, violent tendencies and get them the help they need how much would that cut down on just violence overall? I mean, I'm guessing a lot. You know, wh- why isn't that the main thing we're talking about? Uh, next up, Time Sucker John Leffler wrote in saying, Hey, Master Sucker, after seeing your comments before I listened to the gun control suck, I was a bit ambivalent about listening. After some more thought, I realized that Master Sucker would not fall for the charms of Lucifina and would present the topic in a fair and even-handed manner. I, I really did try to do that. Uh, I listened and I was really impressed with the information and how it's presented. I am a gun owner and enthusiast, but I firmly believe that things do need to change. Learning more about the Swiss and their approach, i.e. education, licensing, etc. I would like to see more of that here in the U.S. I've been shooting since I was about 10. My father taught me explicitly that safety was the most important thing when it comes to shooting. I could not even handle a real gun until I proved that I was safe and competent with the BB pellet gun. Yep, me too. Uh, I had to be conscious of where I was pointing the weapon, show trigger discipline, uh, be able to show I knew the functions of the weapon. I think the problem here in the U.S. is that guns are easy to get and there is no need to show any kind of competency. It's also a huge problem when people on the on the far right say things like guns don't kill, which is absolutely ridiculous. While I absolutely agree that banning certain types of weapons is a farce, I also agree that closing the gun show loophole, creating the National Registry, putting more money emphasis into background checks will lead to a decrease in mass shooting especially. I also think better education and honest discussion about guns will help to curb the shootings. One last point about bump stocks is that there are other ways in which uh, one can achieve the effect. So banning that piece of equipment doesn't necessarily mean that people will not be able to modify their weapon in another manner. Sorry for the long email. Keep on sucking. No apologies necessary, John. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Uh, couldn't agree more on the better education angle. That needs to be necessary. Take a few points from the Swiss, right? That's uh, in addition to mental health. You know, also uh, just just proper gun safety needs to be taught. You know, if, if you have this like fear culture around it, uh, it's, just, it's just not healthy. It's just not healthy to have that association with guns. Uh, I don't think uh, replicating Swiss policy is totally realistic in this country, but I do think we could, uh, you know, learn a thing or two. Next up, Austin Rinker. Austin says, hello, Master Suck. I was very happy with the gun control debate. I was happy you took a more neutral stance on the topic. I noticed when you were talking about the types of rifles getting banned, you said assault rifles should be maybe banned from civilian purchases or something along those lines. I just want to tell you that an assault rifle uh, is, is a weapon specifically given to infantry and have has a very specific characteristic, selective fire. Selective fire allows a shooter on average to switch between safety and fully automatic on the rifle. Uh, sometimes depending on the gun, you will see burst or semi-automatic. As you mentioned in the episode, weapons with the fully auto firing mode are pretty much impossible unless you spend tens of thousands of dollars. And even then it's one of the heaviest regulated things in the country. So with this being said, normal firearms sold to civilians aren't assault rifles, just rifles. It's sort of like, what's the difference between Air Force One and a Boeing 747? One is a military plane. The other is a civilian transport plane. Anyway, I wanted you to know this for the future. Also fun fact. There were rapid-fire weapons before the Second Amendment was signed. One of the guns was the belt and flintlock, multi-shot musket with one load. Another was the puckle gun. 
anyway, just wanted to tell you these things that, uh, that a lot of not people that not a lot of people know about. Uh, can't wait to hear your next episode. Your sucker, Austin. Austin, I hope you did like today's episode and good info on what an assault weapon is. Uh, and I'm torn on weapons like the AR-15 because they don't really have more firepower at the end of the day uh, than other, you know, less military-looking rifles and handguns. And, and then, you know, you know, going after them, we just end up going down this path of trying to ban more and more types of guns, which, I, which I'm not in, in favor of because I don't think that addresses the primary issue. Why are people shooting up places in the first place? Uh, and I know, by the way, that uh, the term assault weapon uh, fired a fair amount of you up because technically any weapon can be used for assault. And, and it feels like a lot of you feel like that kind of maligns a certain class of weapons and makes people more scared of them than they need to be. Uh, next up, Sim Scott, who says, Salutations and well met, O holy daddy of the suck, and your prophet supreme of Nimrod the holy. <laughs> I really enjoyed your last episode on the gun debate. I think you did an incredible job of relaying statistics in an unbiased manner. However, there was one small point you kept that kept sticking out to me as the episode went on. You kept referring to the far left view that was saying, let's get rid of all guns. While I'm sure you meant the far left of mainstream politics in America, I think it's worth mentioning that the actual far left, communist, socialist, anarchist, almost uniformly believes that gun ownership is essential to the well-being of the general public. While you uh, po- pointed out that, that a popular unrising, popular uprising would likely be crushed, so many countries, the U.S. included, rose up anyway and defied the odds and overthrew their unjust government. With the continued milita- militarization of police forces, many leftists, myself included, believe it is essential that the working class is able to arm themselves in case this need arises again. In his address to the Central Committee to the Communist League in 1850, Karl Marx said the workers must be armed and organized. The whole proletariat must be armed at once with muskets, rifles, cannon, ammunition. Under no pretext should arms and ammunition be surrendered. Any attempt to disarm the workers must be frustrated by force if necessary. Anyway, I know you're a commie, bastard-hating, libertarian patriot, but I thought this was something that should be brought to your attention. Thanks for doing what you do. Uh, you're one of, if not, my favorite comedians. Uh, uh, Time Suck is by far my favorite podcast. Hope to be able to join the Spacers and Ranks soon. While I can't make it to Charlotte, hope you come back to North Carolina soon so I can see you in person, you beautiful son of a bitch. Stay curious and keep on sucking, Sims. Well, thank you, Sims. And I, and I don't hate all commies. I just don't think it's a, it's a realistic form of government. I just don't think it's a better form of government than regulated capitalism. Uh, and you do bring up a great point about an armed citizenry. That's probably what I got the most heat over in the emails was that a lot of you disagreed with that point where I said that I didn't think an American, you know, the American public could stand up to the, the American military. I still don't just culturally. I just don't think uh, modern America is ready to hide out in the woods and go fucking full red dawn. But I do have to concede that an armed citizenry would have at least a chance, you know, of, of fighting back compared to an unarmed citizenry that has no chance. So that's a, that's a valid point. That's a very valid point. Thanks for correcting me on that. And now last one, last one. Again, so many came in. This is from Fran uh, Master Paulo. Uh, hey Dan, loved your podcast, uh, on the gun debate. I thought it was st- uh, a stat filled fact filled episode that resonated with me, even though I am of the female ilk ish. I love the ish. I believe that, uh, to have any substantive progress on this, uh, debate, we have to do it in a reasoned manner with thoughtfulness born from, uh, our emotions. Seems like the emotional part has taken over as far as the media is concerned, but when has it ever been a good decision to act immediately after a cataclysmic life altering event? Think about your last major breakup. Uh, can't really relate, though. <laughs> been married for 30 years. It can take weeks, months, even years to recover. And to think about what is, uh, what is the right next thing to do is, like, impossible. Piling on the reason, piling on the reason why this is happening at this time, I, I agree that the media make these perverse lowlifes into celebrities. And you have to actually have some talent to become famous. And you used to actually have to have some talent to become famous. I'd like to throw this into the conversation. Mike Rowe, who is the only man alive... Uh, 
uh, that I would leave my husband for, and he knows that since JFK Jr. is dead, has a, Micro has a Facebook post writing about the epidemic of fatherless children and adults that are lost in our society. The stats are staggering and gut-wrenchingly sad. It seems to me that we have unfortunately been born into a perfect storm, uh, media infamous, plus fatherless households, plus ineffective government agencies, plus lack of moral direction, plus glorification of guns and social media, plus hell, two glasses of wine and two more beers. It's taken me way too long to write this already. So hail Nimrod and fuck the crab feast. Ah, oh, I love Jay, Jay Larson and, uh, and Rye, the crab feast. Uh, oh, wait, keep on sucking. Thanks for sharing that, friend. Yes, fatherless households or households with shitty parental influences. Yet another factor in all this. So many lost kids out there. I mean, look at today's episode. Look at Richard Ramirez. Definitely seemed like a lost kid himself at one point. Clearly uh, didn't have the proper, proper parental guidance uh, when he needed it. So, yes, yeah, so I think part of the gun problem does lie uh, in the mirror. You know, are, are, are we raising our kids the right way? Are we giving them good morals? Are we, you know, giving them households full of love and security with proper respect for, full of, uh, for both life and the instruments capable of taking life? You know, I'm a hateful fuck of a comic, but I'm not a hateful fuck of a father, and I take great pride in that. Parenting really is the most important job you'll ever have. And if you don't have kids, you can always volunteer. A lot of big brother, big sister type programs for troubled kids out there who need a guiding hand in their lives. And I do agree that n- people never make great decisions uh, when they're coming from a, from a highly emotional place, like when the, in the middle of the initial stages of grief. And, and that breakup analogy is perfect. Yeah, you don't make good relationship decisions. That's why there's the whole rebound thing. And you don't make good, uh, you know, we're not going to make a good, you know, decision if it's like a rebound gun decision. So, yeah, so lots to keep thinking about, time suckers. Uh, thanks for writing in. Thanks for being the most awesome people on the planet. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. So that's all for today, Cult of the Curious. I know it was a long one. Uh, man, I hope you enjoyed it. You guys are the fucking best. Have a great weekend. Don't kill anyone to please Satan. Don't, don't try and please Satan in general. And keep on sucking. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wafer helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love chapter two. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.